Welcome to the Panoramic Outdoors Podcast, connecting you to all things outdoors. And we're here. We made it. And uh, what an exciting time. Episode 100. I feel like that's a huge milestone. But before we get too far into it, if you're picking up on the new intro music, we got to give a sh- huge shout out to Del Barber and the, the boys there at the band. Del, thanks so much for uh, putting together. We've been, we were bugging him for a while there to to do something with us. And uh, we knew he was a guy to do it for us. And uh, we finally got around to cutting it in, in the middle of hunting season to episode 100. So it couldn't have come, got uh, come at a better time. I don't know. What do you think, Chase? Yeah. Huge thanks to Dale, man. I, I think, uh, I mean, I mean, we connect with him pretty well and I know he's passionate about hunting and the outdoors, uh, passionate about his family, passionate, very passionate about music um and and does an amazing job um so I, I was super pumped to have him put something together for us for the podcast that we can use so i hope you guys enjoy it as much as we do because I, I think it's awesome yeah no absolutely excited and uh i think it turned out great something that couldn't fit the podcast any better and uh yeah so i mean got new intro music we hit hundred episodes, which is huge. Uh, just uh, kind of one downside here, though, is that we don't we don't have Sheldon with us today on well on the intro portion. He he did a lot of the uh, the actual interviews today, and we got some big guests coming your way. But uh, Sheldon's still out working, keeping yeah. the lights on. Yeah, he's on he's on cleanup duty now. So obviously, if if you guys been listening to the podcast the last little while, um, he was doing some emergency power line construction work. Um, power line that got taken out by uh, a wildfire fire this summer and uh, a couple communities have been without power for quite some time and and uh so he got the lights on over there and now he's got the a bit of a mess to clean up so he's he's uh out there for a couple more weeks just finishing up the job pretty much and making sure everything's all neat and tidy and i'm sure he's doing an awesome job out there and and uh, man i feel bad for him though because he's just working his tail off right in the middle of hunting season and i think uh you know he's, he's missing a lot of uh his archery season that he loves to go sit with uh and hunt with his old man and stuff so i know he's gone out for for a couple sits and seen some some decent bucks but uh yeah man i hope uh hope he wraps up soon and i hope he can uh enjoy the rest of his fall once he gets out of there yeah, you're heading out that way in a in a little while, eh? We do have plans to uh, to connect on a hunt. Um, I went out there last year. I think it was my first year chanting out with out there with him, and I absolutely loved it. So I, I was pretty pumped up there. Uh, I I mean I've done we've obviously done some hunts together with him before, but I haven't done the archery whitetail with him. He took me out on a bird hunt and. And, uh, yeah, him and his old man are very accommodating and awesome people. And they have, uh, yeah, some, some amazing 
um, pieces of property there that they hunt on. And, um, it's, it's so different than where I'm used hunting. So it's, it's, uh, it's a pretty attractive deal to me, you know, some nice rolling hills up there that way. And, and it's, I don't know, super neat. Oh, I could, I could see that the draw for sure. Um, maybe if you're listening and, uh, want to do a good deed for the fall, just, uh, I challenge you to shoot Sheldon there a little good luck over the IG messenger or something like that. Keep his spirits high there because uh, he's been grinding it out and uh, you got to appreciate the fact that he's, he's been working to keep the lights on for a lot of folks up North there. So um, yeah, just wish the guy a little luck and uh, I think he'll appreciate it. Yeah. I, one cool thing that, that uh, he, he's been, chat me uh, a little bit he doesn't have cell service obviously during the day and when they get back to camp i think they do but he's been uh getting some pretty cool moose action along the line there apparently <laughs> having some, some cool encounters so um that's kind of neat the one uh instagram post there while we were in moose camp he put up i think he called that bull right in or something or heard it coming in whatever it may be but it's a pretty big bull that he got a picture of there so yeah that's awesome He's, uh, maybe got to drop some eye hunter pins, eh? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, and speaking of which, uh, as everyone knows, hopefully that eye hunter has been supporting the podcast for a while here. And, uh, we're, we've been using that product even just for a long time, Chase, even like, I think even before we started the podcast, eh? Yeah. Yeah. I remember, um, the first time I heard about it was you were talking about it. And, uh, you had, I think, spoken with our uncle who is, whose cousin knows Mark's dad, I think, or something like that. There's a weird connection in there. Between... Yeah, they're, they're loosely related, I think. Yeah. So, so, um, um, yeah. And I remember you saying like, Hey, check this out. I got this, uh, um, this kind of, I think we're. I think you were just testing it out, the app kind of thing. It was, it was the original beta yeah. test for the app. And you're like, check this out. And you tossed me the link and uh, we fired it up. And I was like, wow, that's pretty sweet. Like all this stuff on on your phone. Yeah. And uh, I mean, like most things, we kind of just play, played around with it. And then and then uh, through the years, we, we figured out how useful this thing actually is. And, and you get into the tools and how to use it properly you know, and it becomes an essential part. It has become an essential part of our kit for sure for years. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so we were, we were super stoked this year when, uh, uh, when Mark kind of approached us and, and wanted to do a little bit of work together and also launched his, uh, private landowner maps in Manitoba now. And the public land subscription came out last year, I believe. And they launched launch a whole new interface um, just recently, which is uh, a bunch more user friendly and um, super easy to navigate, and just an awesome new look, new product, pretty much. Well, I guess same product, but you know, that's got a new look, and uh, it's, I, I think it's just easier to use now with that new interface. So it, it's been cool to watch that the app grow itself. And like you said, those tools kind of like come out, not just in Manitoba, but across Canada. Yeah. And and even in a couple of the states, right? Yeah. It's funny 
when I think back now about my, um, like my relationship with my GPS, which is, has been something that I, I relied heavily upon since I was young, right? It's always in the pack, always comes with you to the woods. And now when I think about iHunter and how that's replacing my GPS for me now and all the additional features that you get with iHunter is just unbelievable. Like with my GPS, you know, we had some of the, the topo mapping, the additional stuff loaded on there from Garmin. But now we got satellite maps on iHunter. You can see all kinds of stuff. Like we use that thing like crazy in Moose Camp. And yeah. you can see rapids on there. You can see old burns. You can see trails, old trails. And it, it's like, I don't know. It's unbelievable how how far they've come since from like the GPS to now here we are with iHunter. Just this amazing tool. Yeah, and I, I dropped the, uh, like I said, I dropped the GPS this time for the, the first time out on a hunt in northern Manitoba. And I, I feel like that is a watershed moment for me. I didn't miss it. Yeah. So. <laughs> Yikes, eh? That's that's the end of an era, as far as I can tell. That's kind of crazy. It's crazy to think so, about. Big so up. Yeah. Thing. You we you gotta appreciate iHunter. Uh at least we do. And uh if you if you want to test it out too, we still got the, the promo code going there, that panoramic 30, like it gets you 30 off of the the public land subscription yeah. on the on the web app there. So check them out on the web. So go through your browser. Yeah, you gotta go to web.ihunterapp.com and uh when you go to purchase the public land subscription, type in the code panoramic thirty. That'll get you thirty percent off that code. Um but they also do have their, their base mapping technology there. So you can get into that for fairly cheap if you're interested. And uh I mean something that we've been diving into a lot too is their public or their private land subscription, their private land maps that you can purchase and they overlay right onto the satellite maps. And it's, I don't know, uh, just an amazing tool. You can see exactly where you're at, whose property you're at while you're driving around scouting, whatever, you know, becomes a very, very useful tool. Yeah, I agree. And it's, uh, it's just, it's wild to think how the, the podcast has come along being at a hundred now. I, I wonder how many hours let's, so let's pretend that we got 90 minutes in per guest just on average. Mm -hmm. That's, that's what, like 9,000 minutes of airtime. I guess that would, yeah. Yeah. It's like a thousand minutes, 150 hours of, of airtime. Not bad. That's wild. <laughs> I guess yeah. a radio host does quite a bit, but uh, for a couple of guys that just tossed some mics up on the table and started chatting it's not too bad yeah yeah and it's uh it was cool to kind of watch um you know obviously when you start you just uh you throw that first post up and you kind of pray i remember <laughs> I, th I think it was that that one of me holding some fish out at uh, sheldon's moose camp there yeah and that that was kind of like the announcement to the world that we were here and uh it was like friends and family were excited but it was cool to see how quickly um, you know, the hunting and com fishing community and the outdoors community started to like get in on what we were up to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know so saying? yeah, the, the, the huge learning curve, but 
definitely um, lots of work to get into it, but I feel like, you know, uh, I've always had this idea of, of our company coming from a genuine approach where we don't really BS about what we're doing. There's a lot of BS in happening. Don't get me wrong, but, oh, yeah. but like, I don't know. We don't really try and hide anything that we're, we're honest. We're, we're, we never claim to be the great outdoorsmen. Although I'd like to, I'd like to, I don't think, uh, you know, don't quite have the time commitment right now with, with family and, and, uh, everything to, uh, to spend every day in the woods, like lots of people do. So, um, you know, there are better outdoorsmen than us out there for sure. People catch bigger fish, people shoot bigger bucks, but, um, I've always been, yeah, like I said, honest and hoping to bring some education, hopefully a few laughs and, uh, hopefully people relate to where we're coming from. Right. Totally. And I, I was just looking at the, the first few episodes there and the first two were kind of us on our own and, uh, deep down in the archive somewhere there is an episode that we hint at every once in a while where I think we, we got absolutely torqued up <laughs> one, one evening and, uh, decided to, to, to record our first podcast and, uh, I remember you having like a panic attack the next day, being like, this is not what our business can be. We got to, we got to focus. <laughs> yeah. And Sheldon are just like trying to shake it off and like, Hey man, you're in on it too. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. Yeah. I remember those moments for sure. There was definitely, there were, while there was, I think there was a couple at the start that are, that are somewhere deep in the archives there. Like you said, that, that never made it to air. Um, and then, uh, maybe one day if we, we set up our only fans or whatever we joke about there. Yeah. And there's definitely a couple after a couple beers on a Saturday night that's like, let's fire up the podcast gear. And then it's just doesn't ever get, <laughs> get no. launched in, in my defense. I think I've been good on the rest of the podcast, except for th- there's been, I'll, I'll admit to maybe one in the, the later 99. Yeah. Where I, I've definitely had a couple of beverages on, on some of them. Um, and then, uh, yeah, lately it's been pretty much all business on my end. Yeah. And it has to be, I think. Yeah. To some regard. Um, but scrolling through too, and I, I was looking at like just some of the names that have, that have come onto the show, you know, like, I mean, like, Big Joe, Joe Apple there, you know, probably didn't know us from a hole in the ground, but just such a nice guy decided to come on and mm-hmm. share, share with us. Um, and uh, I always, I always loop back to the Creighton one for whatever reason, because I just loved what that was all about. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, you know, Jay Siemens was on super early too. So Jay, you know, like, thanks for coming on early and uh, you know, Giving us the the old J Siemens bump. Yeah, I think it's it's uh, it's interesting. Finding guests is not the easiest thing to do, and throughout that process, a few things I found um, are the fact that like there's there is a lot of genuine people in the outdoor industry, and um, like the people that we have on, most of them are very genuine cool people um easy to talk to and our, our 
willing obviously to give up their time for to hop on our podcast whether that's you know good media for them more media is always good media for them right and uh but i think lots of them have a genuine interest in just uh sharing their story and sharing some information across uh the outdoor community the other thing that i did find out though too is like to be in the outdoor media world there are some hustlers out there man people put in a lot of time to do this gig and uh it's certainly been i mean no we've we've put on our our fair share on our end but uh you know some of those 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 bigger names out there are you know that's all they um eat sleep and breathe kind of thing right so it's it's uh it's interesting to hear the dynamics from from those folks and I don't know, just get a, a, a backdoor look into the, their lives kind of thing. Yeah, we uh, we had on earlier in an earlier episode there just recently, April Volke, and she's, she's going to join us again today uh, for the 100. So thanks so much to April for, for being a part of our 100th, like a just huge outdoor personality. But also, like, I, I was just struck chatting with her about how many different things she's got on the go and how how not she's like focused, but also like on multiple things at the same time. Right. And she's able to like manage all these different priorities um, and, and be like a parent on top of all that. So like, it's just, I, I feel like even myself parenting, like in the podcast here, like that's, that feels like enough some days. Right. So like yeah. April, April's like leadership in the outdoor world. Like I was a little in awe of, to be honest, like just, chatting with her yeah and her ability to just like string together high quality content yeah from multiple platforms you know what i'm saying she's super high focus high drive and she she uh executes well and the the it, it like the crazy thing i think about too is like she she launches launches a podcast every two weeks i think it was or two a month or something like that and uh has been doing so for 10 years or something like that she said or Maybe not ten. I can't remember. Um, but going back to like the the parenting thing and like the since COVID hit here, you know, it's it's really pushed us towards the digital platform of podcasting. You know what I mean? And um, I'm sure she's doing more digital on her end because she's super locked down in Australia there right now. But um, she strives to like sit down in person with every one of her guests to have their conversations though, you know, when, when she's able to travel. So just thinking about that factor to put on top of everything else that, that she does in the outdoor world and all the resources she provides is, is incredible. Yeah, man. If you can, if you can get there, why not though? Like I, I know I, I prefer being in person too. You know what I mean? But yeah. She's, she's definitely got a, a plan of attack and she, she commits to it. So, and I know uh, later in the podcast here, like, I mean, not just how she thinks tactically, but she's got a, just a wealth of knowledge on things like you're talking there, Chase, uh, conservation for fishing, mm-hmm. you know, how to, how to attack a, a, a stream for, for fish too, like fly fishing and just like, um, that depth of knowledge on both sides of the coin is almost equally impressive. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Big time, man. Big time. The, the other thing I'm incredibly humbled about through panoramic is, and uh, 
this this just might be a selfish comment, but like I've I've made some like I feel like lifelong friends out of this this whole gig. Um, I remember one time we threw up like a a question on our our social media cast, and like it blew up for who we had following us. And uh, I love that stuff too when people are referring us guests. Like that's awesome. But one one of them was like, "Hey, have Graham Crawford on. He knows a lot about chickens and dogs." <laughs> And sure enough, Graham's just up the road from us. Yeah, now you can't get rid of him. You can't get rid of him. No, I, <laughs> I love, got a dog from Graham. You know, I'm hanging out, training dogs with him. Like, just unbelievable. And uh, gone, sneaked out on a few hunts. You know, other guys I think about, uh, uh, McFads. Like, yeah. how much shit have we done with uh, Josh McFadden there? Like, whether it's cooking, just mucking around in the woods. We went to turkey camp with him. Mm-hmm just amazing relationship there. Keevan, you know, like I'm always bugging Keevan on whether he's got elk on the go or what the scoop is there. He's got the Traeger rolling now too. Right. Yeah. Oh man. uh, The, the relationships that are built from this company have been unbelievable. Like you said, those, those three guys are just all rock solid dudes. And I think like beyond like Del Barber here now, like is, yeah all these guys have been on the podcast and have become friends, share passions, share interests. And I think it's a lot has to do with like the same level of passion as well. Right. And they all kind of play well, into yeah. that. I think Kiva's is maybe a little bit more passionate about elk than I am. Let's just put it that <laughs> way. But well, well he's, he's definitely uh, injected right into the, the elk woods there pretty much. So yeah, if I, if I were living a little bit closer to elk, I think I would spend a little bit more time out there. So, but, uh, you know, that'd be pretty tough to get the family to up and move into elk country right now, I think. Yeah. After you just bought. Yeah. And, uh, Dell, you know, like you said, wrote our intro music there. Um, I, I was watching him live there at his last concert in Winnipeg. You give me a shout out and I, my face just turned red in the middle of the crowd, but it was one of my cooler concert experiences yeah uh i'm, I'm gonna s- sneak in here for a second he just released a new album not too long ago as well straight dogs yeah super awesome and uh if you guys know who dell is or are interested in his music go check it out it's an amazing album i've had it on repeat for a long time probably listened to it about five times on the way up to moose camp yeah and this is gonna blow your mind chase but i i think i've told this to you before maybe actually though dell is a I'm, I'm not sure how he's going to feel about this, but I, I believe Dell is a better performer in person because he's got like that storytelling aspect to his his songs and it, not just that, but his like interludes. Mm-hmm. So, so it's not just like a, uh, he comes and plays the songs off his album. There's like a, a back and forth almost that exists. And yeah. it's, it's, it's really fun to watch. It's, it's entertainment. It's, uh, it's a performer. Yeah. And you almost feel like you're rolling into one of those honky tonks from time gone past. So, oh, that's awesome, man. That's so awesome. Yeah, you, well, you can really tell the depth of Dell's storytelling as well, like in the in the podcast that we have done with him. Um, very thorough, very thought out. He's one of those uh, philosophical thinkers. Oh, totally. Got a got a huge noggin on him. Yeah. Um. One hey, one thing we got to bug Kevin about those. He's on the Traeger um, train there. Hey, eh? we maybe got to convert him over to a pit barrel unit there or something. We might have to give him a little nudge. We'll see what we can do. 
man, these, these cooler temperatures are coming down here. I know lots of people are, you know, the gardens are done and, uh, I just pulled out, uh, chicken actually. And speaking about rock solid people that we've had on the podcast as well, uh, April Don Willis, you know, nice. a, a profound female, uh, outdoors woman here in Manitoba. Uh, I bought some chickens off her, so I pulled one of them out, and I'm going to throw it in a brine tomorrow. And when I come to your place, I'm going to steal that pit barrel back and throw it in there. And what I'm looking forward to the most is not only the chicken that comes out of the pit barrel, but the soup I get to make with that. Oh yeah, for hunting. And there's nothing better than than uh, a pit barrel chicken soup out in the woods. So, well, I I don't know if I got good news or bad news for you, buddy, but you're coming over for dinner tomorrow to carve some pumpkins with the kids and uh, you're getting chicken on the pit barrel. So nice. I don't know how you feel about that. But. <laughs> Double whammy. I like it. Yeah. I like it. Not disappointed at all. Uh, I, I got a shadow pit barrel though. Cause like they've been maybe our biggest supporter. Yeah. Since, since we've kind of hit our stride here and uh, it's been really cool to be able to partner with a company with uh with a product like i feel like the pit barrel just suits us in so many ways mm-hmm. like it's not it's not complicated it's it's you get your value for your money it tastes it makes really good food and at the end of the day like i just think back to that time that i hauled it onto the river when it was like minus 35 out and like ratchet strapped it down into a sled and it like fell over and popped out of that sled and we dusted it off and like put it back in and we were good to go. It's robust, we, man. Yeah. We smoked a turkey in the ice tent because we had to like get it out of the wind basically because the, the wind was just howling down the pipe on the river that day. Yeah. That's that's the the Northern Manitoba barbecue issues. Um, I've had that thing in the box of my truck so many times going to hunt camps or like even ice fishing we've we've taken it like you said a few times so i don't know man it 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 that thing has a lot of wear on it from just being in the box of my truck and uh man it's it's holding up good cuz you strap that sucker in and you can go anywhere that's all flavor man that's yeah. all flavor yeah which is pretty sweet so uh thanks pit barrel a for supporting us b for introducing us to the amazing flavors that that you know the the pit barrel can provide for us and uh if you guys are interested in getting to pit barrel you've listened to the podcast before you know where to find them pitbarrelcookers.com if you're south of the border free shipping across the lower 48 so check out their website and they have all kinds of cookers on there they just came out with this huge like uh the i think Oh shoot, I can't remember the name of it, but you can fit like 16 chickens in there. <laughs> <laughs> I should I should be the common common measurement is how many ch- chickens can you fit in something. <laughs> uh super cool though. And they got all kinds of accessories. They got beer openers, they got gloves, they got accessories for smoking corn, cooking corn in there. And uh if you're up in Canada and you want to figure out how do I get my hands on one of these? They have a map on there that shows all their distributors. Check it out. You will be sure to find one close by. Yeah, ma'am. That's the that's the PBX you're talking about, I think. That's it. Yeah, the PBX. Yeah. It's sold out on their website. So Ooh. you know what? I was thinking too that like 
this would be like even just the classic which we got and use all the time would be an awesome uh christmas gift and and now might be the time to strike mm-hmm. well well the iron is hot you know what i'm saying yeah and you can get that pit barrel junior that's about half the size and you know that's if you're thinking about hey i need something to toss in the quad to get into my tent camp or something like that there you go you can pack everything up inside of this thing your charcoal everything you need to get into camp and it's just the barrel pretty much so if you ever carry a fuel drum or jerry cans you know there you go now you got a wicked ass cooking device going to camp (laughs) with you yeah just as rugged as you are what do you think when you think about all the stuff that you've cooked on there what are a couple meals that stand out to you I th- I think what happened is we cooked ribs on there for the first time and that will always stand out in my head because I was always sh- I was shocked at how good the ribs came out cuz I'd always just done them in like a regular propane vertical smoker and they never get the bark that they do in this this pit barrel cooker. Mm-hmm. Um and even just that like throwing we're going to have potatoes tomorrow too. And I just love the way potatoes turn out on this thing. Like a baked potato on the pit barrel cooker is unbelievable. Yeah. That's good. How about, how about you? Oh man. A couple standout meals for me. Cause like I, I haven't been able to replicate the can't even talk tonight. I haven't been, been able to repli- replicate the, the flavor profile from the pit barrel in any other device. Um, so one, was the first hamburger that I had off there, which you cooked at my place, I think. Oh, yeah. And it was like a uh, hamburger's hamburger, whatever. I, I always just do them on the propane, whatever. And uh, we did them up on the pit barrel that day, and it was unbelievable. Just total game changer. Changes up the hamburger completely. And then uh, another standout meal, I think, would have to be like the the pulled wild wild boar shoulders that i do on there and it's like eight hours in there and there's so much fat on there that just breaks down and tissue and it just comes out nice and creamy smooth pulled pork and toss that in a wrap or a taco can't beat that man cannot beat that yeah that's uh that's pretty deadly i I've, i i can attest that's definitely uh you've done more of that and i'm, I'm glad when you do because it always turns out great uh, circling, circling back to the the podcast here, Chase, and like a kind of a recap. Like, do you have any like sleeper episodes that you're kind of like sneaky proud of? You know what I'm saying? Like ones that you maybe you're on the fence about, or either that, or like it was just you knew it was going to be good going in, but you weren't sure if anyone else knew it was going to be good. Anything like that? Oh man, there's been a few because. Like I said, it's with uh, with a few of these folks. It, it's tough to uh, line stuff up with dates and in time sometimes because they're busy, we're busy, and uh, we try and give them as much of a of a opening as as we can give them. And then, but sometimes it doesn't work out. But eventually, when it does, you know, I'm always thinking like, is this even worth it? And <laughs> One of the episodes that kind of stood out in my mind was was uh, Willie Mitchell, who's an ex NHLer and huge conservationist, and is is doing some great things up in Tofino, and just uh, seems like a real salt of the earth kind of guy, and just 
is doing good things, man. Good things for people, good things for the community up there. And is chasing what he loves, which is fish in the ocean. And it, uh, I don't know. It was, that, that was one of those episodes where we're, we're kind of trying to get him on for a while and it finally worked out. And I was just my grinning ear to ear after that episode, thinking about it. Super cool. What about yourself? Man, I've got a few and I'm just trying to like put things into perspective here because I'm honestly, I'm so gracious for all the, all the guests that join us on the, on the show. But, uh, one of them for sure is the, the Paul McCartney episode there that we kind of discussed the ethics of hunting and, you know, how it evolved into, you know, the modern scene and what we're seeing today. Yeah. And just a deep appreciation for how sharp Paul is on so much of that stuff. And, uh, Oh, he's a brilliant human being that guy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and, and the conversation just felt like we could have talked for four hours and uh we still obviously we still wouldn't have touched on everything, but it was just it was that kind of conversation, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It almost makes me dizzy and think about like all the folks that we've had on the podcast and just all the knowledge that they that they have that they bring that like I don't have. You know yeah, what yeah. I mean? <laughs> it's it's overwhelming to think about. Well, that's why we bring them on. Yeah. Um I and I was I don't want to say surprised. But like well, one of our first guests, the first guest actually was Frank Baldwin, I'm pretty sure. Uh junior there. Yeah. And man, what a like I remember I was listening to that in the car because I was headed down to, to New Orleans at the time and I couldn't join you guys. I screwed and up the audio on just, that episode too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, there's been some learning since we'll just put it that way. Although we still have audio problems every once in a while. Um, but like Frank, just such a sharp guy knows so much about, you know, not just waterfowl, but like birds in general. And I was like, Holy man, if this is what our podcast is going to be like, we're onto something here. Right. Dude is sharp as attack and, and, uh, really interesting dude to talk to. Yeah. That was super exciting. And then, uh, uh, another favorite sleeper of mine was Dr. Steve, just cause he was just so fun to <laughs> chat with. He was hilarious, man. It's just, he's, yeah, I had, I think he had like so many jokes with bugs and, uh, just one of the more entertaining episodes I've been a part of. That's for sure. I think there was a couple of dick jokes in that, in that yeah. episode too, wasn't <laughs> there? Definitely was. Yeah. He didn't shy away. Eh? Yeah. Like, we kind of got hooked up to talk with, about this like new clothing line that Marks was coming out with, but like Dr. Steve comes in hot. <laughs> and it's just dropping puns left, right, and center. It was awesome. I loved it every second of it. Yeah, it was a great and one. The other one, too, that I was kind of thinking of is uh, you weren't a part of it, but uh, the one with Richie Casement. And, like, uh, I didn't really know much about Richie leading into uh, into that one, but what he was able to kind of convey with his entire experience with Live to Hunt and um, – the kind of the behind the scenes look and, you know, Richie's a very thoughtful guy too. And you can tell he dedicates himself a lot to not only spending time outdoors, but chasing like premium whitetail deer. Um, that was, that was like just a, a gem for me in a lot of ways. Yeah, no, that was a great one. And, uh, it's, uh, yeah, man, Richie, awesome dude. And it, he's, he's actually part of like, uh, yeah, if you guys don't know, so Richie Caseman is part of the live to hunt crew. He's, uh, He's, I think, Cody's main cameraman, Cody Robbins. And Cody's actually going to be on the show talking a little bit about little hunting, little shed hunting um, on this episode as well. But it seems 
like Richie's at times a, a very essential part of that team and it's he's a great hunter man and and you'd have to be to be part of that team to chase the the quality of animals that those guys go after totally and yeah looking i'm looking forward to seeing what uh cody has to say too because i know when we were chatting with richie he was like yeah 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 we'll get uh we'll get cody on too and i was like well you know cody's a pretty big he's pretty busy too right they're they're Mm -hmm. chasing whitetail all fall like it seems non-stop so um obviously we'd be gracious for any any time that uh cody had for us but yeah when sheldon messaged that cody was coming on for the hundredth that was that was pretty big yeah i it's it's so interesting man one of my favorite things about chatting with these guys um especially guys that are you know have a tv show or have a youtube or you know are already have a heavy presence somewhere in the media the podcast is almost like an opportunity to step back and have a look into their lives beyond what they're putting out there on their platform. And, and it's a different view a lot of the time. So you, you get a different respect for who you're chatting with. I find a lot, I, I walk away from a lot of these conversations humbled and just figuring out a little more who these people are. And it, it's, it's motivating for me. And it's, it's uh, just makes me a bigger fan of who we're chatting with. Yeah, man. And like, it's, it's kind of cool. Like, cause with the podcast, I feel like they, they loosen the shirt collar a bit too. You know what I'm saying? Like if they're Mm -hmm. typically on TV or, you know, maybe more concentrated media, we'll say, um, definitely more focused, but when they're chatting with us, it just seems like you really get to know them as a, like you said, another person. And you start to think, Hey, like they're not that different from us or kind of the, what we do. Yeah. Um, you you build a little rapport and you you, you almost think like hey like it, it boosts you up a bit but then you go north of Gillum to shoot a moose and you don't see anything um <laughs> and that humbles you pretty quickly oh man I, I feel like our our uh our listeners and our our uh supporters are going to be uh seriously questioning our ability to to hunt here after the last few years of a uh, becoming elk coming back elk list for the last how many years and then uh coming home mooseless after this trip was whew, some pretty you know, tough pills to swallow yeah it's been really tough but you know who had our back up there was wolof and i i will die on that hill um and i remember at one point i was decked head to toe in wolof looking like a black literally head to toe yeah (laughs) (laughs) and i was like man this this shit is warm at least it's warm i'm wet i'm mooseless our boat is broken but this shit is warm yeah so and we got a couple you got a couple dicey situations there too where you know you needed some good gear on the back to and you need needed stuff to perform yeah yeah, and uh, I was glad I was there. That was almost like the silver lining of the the whole scenario there of me sitting in my little self pity pit, um, just being able to know that I was warm enough to to make it through and not have to like hit the SOS button on the old star ski there. Oh man, that thought certainly rolls through your mind when uh, shit goes sideways. And yeah, it was. Uh... It was almost a bit emotional rolling out of that, realizing that we're going to be all right. And uh, even the fact that we're going to be able to get back on the river with that 
watercraft was was something special and um Wolof obviously played a part in that and and they've been a supporter of this podcast for for quite some time now as well um and they they have an awesome product and uh the funny thing <laughs> i think about moose camp like same thing i, I wore my Wolof stuff the entire time i was up there and i remember remember at one point dylan saying oh man something stinks in here and i think it's me and uh so i gave myself the old like sniff test obviously i don't know maybe i get used to my body odor more than other people do but i couldn't smell anything and i want to like put that towards the antimicrobial properties that the wolf has so i'm like you know spend a week in camp don't come back stinking too bad at least your clothing doesn't yeah yeah exactly that was that was exciting um also like i identified earlier just how quickly it dried off and the fact that honestly that it held together after like i'll be honest i'm not light on my gear like a lot of the stuff i own like probably rips or burns or something like that and <laughs> the the wolof is actually intact which I, I should knock on wood, but like it, it's held up, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So definitely that's the good news there. Yeah. And, uh, if you guys want to get into some wool love, you can head over to their website, wool.love. That is their website, wool.love. And, uh, they also have all sorts of bundles. So the more you buy, the more you save kind of thing. And like Tristan said, he's decked out in the head to toe stuff and they have all kinds of other other products there that they offer which are great so i know i've been wearing uh the the t-shirts vastly fastly become one of my favorite articles of clothing just to wear around the house and stuff like that because it is like keeps you at a good temp no matter what temp it is outside or in the house Mm -hmm. it might be another good christmas gift now me just thinking or holiday gift whatever you celebrate right just like uh keep you warm kind of package yeah so pick up some more love pick up some panoramic gear boom yeah. christmas shopping's done today you're looking looking Get on good it. yeah um what do you were there any guests that you were really surprised like you're like holy shit we actually got this person coming on the podcast like did they maybe look up the wrong panoramic outdoors <laughs> oh man i i feel like I'm always at a spot where I'm thinking, am I going to be able to get this guy on? Like, is, do they know who we are? Are like, we've been doing it for three years, over three years now. Is this like, and I, I never feel like I'm really a, a big deal kind of thing. If you want to put it that way, you know what I mean? Or something. I, I got recognized in Cabela's once, if that counts. <laughs> but uh, yeah, a couple of guys that, that i i had to wonder was like first was was uh doug dern yeah which you guys might know through through meat eater um and doug just turned out to be just one hell of an amazing human being in general which is super awesome he he is exactly how he represents himself on on tv and every other piece of media that i see him in and uh the big one for this show too well a big one for this show is uh mr jim shockey too he's probably got the uh the longest running um media game going out of the three guests in the show here so he was a bit of a surprise and and it was uh it was pretty awesome to connect with him and and get a look into 
have a conversation where he's at right now. Yeah, I was I I thought Sheldon was lying when he said he got Jim on the show. We've kind of been tossing the Jim Shockey thing around for for years, you know. As a joke, yeah. I wrote it in my diary. I said Sheldon told a very funny joke this morning. He said he got Jim Shockey <laughs> on the podcast. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, no, it was and it was cool to 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 kind of know that he was going to be rolling on the panoramic podcast like jim's like you said he's been in the game for so long um that was awesome you know other ones that i'm just thinking of too like even like steve piera um hank shaw like how cool is it to have hank on the show you know guy well-published uh cook and uh his his own media game to boot you know like and just like a awesome speaker tony peterson Mm-hmm. you know another well-published individual like all folks just like super willing like to talk about what they're passionate about which is awesome um and i think we've only got one like hard shutdown a hey, chase um we don't have to name names but yeah yeah we, we've been ghosted a couple times we've had one hard shutdown and then just a couple not a few non-replies those are always the good ones <laughs> yeah the non-replies, like, it is what it is, I think. But it, yeah. it's funny to kind of get, like, no, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. This isn't going to work for us. Yeah. What? What, All is right. that, what does that even mean? <laughs> See it on the road. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck, so, out, good luck out there. Yeah. It's hard to it's hard to put up the, the no hard feelings kind of thing and uh, carry on your merry way because, I mean, our intentions are always good with, with what we're trying to bring to the table. But... Hey man, everyone has their own brand, and if they're if they're if they don't see it aligning with what we're doing, that's fine too, you know. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so just super excited to have Jim on, and uh, you know the the other thing that I was excited about was actually to get Heights on as like kind of a, a partner with us here, and like just because like Heights has been in the game for so long in town here, and they've like. I think we've chatted about this before, but when you think about like archery in Winnipeg, like Heights is what pops to my mind. Yeah. When you think about, you know, local outdoor stores, Heights is what pops to my mind and they're getting bigger too. Right. Which is kind of cool to see. Yeah. They're, they're definitely expanding their, their, uh, their products and their expertise beyond just being an archery store. And that's, kind of where they started was like the archery stuff and some muzzleloading stuff right and you could uh obviously you can hear it all on the kind of on the podcast we did with jason there but i was yeah same thing man i was pumped to to connect with jason and and uh get something rolling with them because they've been my go-to archery shop since i don't know how old like i bought my first actual bow there and i've been I guess my second actual bow as well. And, you know, I always feel confident rolling in there that they're going to steer me in the right direction, even if I have no fucking idea what I might actually be going in for. And, uh, I don't know. I always, I always come out with, uh, with confidence walking away with my product. And I feel like that's something really important when, when heading out into the field, going hunting. So, I do I do try to do lots of my own research, but if there's something I don't know, those guys are always, you know, on it. Yeah. And it it was also really cool chatting with Jason to get 
a behind the scenes look at what it what it actually entails to run one of these shops mm-hmm. and kind of like the dedication you have to have and um not only that but kind of like the know-how and and the community focused kind of outlook to be able to like pull this off you know yeah. what i mean so to to have to have an institution like that uh and serving not just winnipeg like it's it's really cool to see oh it's amazing man um yeah if you guys are interested in uh you know like we said heights is expanding their their stock their expertise they're into the firearms game now they have ammunition reloading stuff uh optics pretty much anything you need to hit the field camouflage uh, they got late season gear there. They got calls. They have targets. Obviously, archery equipment, and uh, they have all the staff there that uh, have expertise in this field. So, um, if you're if you're wanting to support a local shop, you know this is the best opportunity that you can think about. Heights Outdoors in Winnipeg. And if you can't make it to Winnipeg, head over to the website heightsoutdoors.com, and they they have a uh, Everything's up to date on their website there, all their products and everything. So check them out. I've seen actually they got, uh, they just got in there, the new uh, aluminum Phelps bugle tubes. Hooey. Which is on my Christmas list, hint, hint, for anybody buying Christmas gifts for me this year. <laughs> <laughs> the the other cool thing with, uh, with uh, Heights too is, uh, Brian just stopped by today to drop off the cooktop because we're going to take it up to camp soon. It's born it. And uh, we had another good chuckle over his rifle story that he bought there. And it was like, yeah, that, I asked Jason about that. I said, and Jason knew the gun that you bought. And, you know, he, he knew exactly what rifle that was and who owned it before you. Yeah. So, yeah, he's just, got the, it's almost like once you become a customer of those, those small stores, you become a lifetime customer and they, and they 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 know their their customers there, right? And they build these relationships, lifelong relationships with their customers, and uh, that's just the kind of service you get there. Like you're, you're walking into a shop that you feel like family in, pretty much. Totally, totally. So yeah, thanks again to Heights, like Chase said. Uh, glad you're uh, not only with us, but just with the with the outdoor community that we work with. Mm-hmm. What a like? Do you have any other like kind of either highlights or lowlights from this whole process here, Chase? We've been at it for a number of years now, and the the company's growing. The uh, our ability to to communicate and relate to to people, our span. You know, we got people listening in like Germany, Russia. Yeah. Like, uh, do you do you do you have any like highlights or anything that you'd like to share? I think like the my favorite moments are when either a somebody references us to say either they got motivated or heard something on our podcast or whatever it may be and shares a moment with us that either is their success or them getting into something into the outdoors more into the outdoors and excuse me beyond that is like when we started doing some of those like seminars for intro to big game hunting and stuff like, excuse me, stuff like that, which I'd like to do more of eventually. Um, yeah, that, that's the stuff that, that keeps me motivated, man. It's, it's like I said, we're not, we're not professionals and we're not, 
it it's the stuff you see on, on TV is obviously like the um when, remember when we were talking to Nicole Qualtieri there? Oh yeah. And we're we're chatting a little meat eater stuff and she was saying, you know, you got a week long hunt that you have to jam into whatever it is, twenty two minutes or twenty five minutes or whatever it may be, right? So you don't get to see the back end of all the shit that happens in the woods and all the all the real grinding and, and, and stuff like that. You just get a short highlight reel of probably not even all the highlights that happen. So it's it's you, you miss a lot of the actual gritty stuff that goes on out there and uh, lots of the failures. So it's kind of like I feel like that's what I try and present to is like how the shit happens out there. It's not always sunshine. Yeah, how how much footage do you think we would have actually got from the moose hunt? Like thirty five seconds of arable footage. <laughs> That's the thing. How much footage do you think you get air of of us driving in a canoe? Yeah, <laughs> mind you that uh, well, we can share some of that brook trout fishing later, and that was just world class. Like I, I don't want to underplay that. I think we were chatting with Dylan, and he was saying like guys would pay tens of thousands of dollars to do what you guys just did. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think Dylan shared it yet, but he has a video of us on a triple header of, like, I'm pretty sure all Master Angler Brook Trout. Yeah, yeah, it's wild. On the it's fly wild. rods. It's literally wild. Like, the, the trout were wild, so, yeah. Anyways, I won't go into that too much. But one of the one of the things that I wanted to remind is uh, that I was really excited about was that ice fishing event we put on. And even though it was a few hiccups yes, uh, getting out there, like, Man, how cool was that to like um, just have a bunch of people show up and just jig for walleye for yeah. a day? And the real cool thing is like there was obviously a few people that, that we knew there um, that came to support us. But there was like I think we had about 60 people roll through that day. Random like people who just uh, are part of the community here. And I, I think that's. I guess the word I really should be using in, in uh, a lot of these references is the community that we're trying to build. And uh, I hope, I, I mean, I hope we're still building and I hope we can get out and do more of that stuff coming this, this winter again. Yeah. That's, I know it was well received and I would, I would love to be back at a point where we're, we're doing that again. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Just bringing people together, man, having a good time and, and uh, pretty much just celebrating the outdoors. That's what we're doing, right? We had some cooking. We had some fishing. We got to meet people. People got to meet other people. And uh, <laughs> I don't know. Just sounds like a good time to me. Totally. You know, the other thing we did, too, is we stopped saying absolutely. Most of the time. Sometimes Most. we pick up a, a different uh, little phrase we toss in there. I, I cut out a lot of yeps, uh-huh, kind of stuff like that. A lot yeah, of us. I say uh about eight million times an episode still. So where do you where do you think we're headed? Where do you think what's on the horizon? Ooh, man. Good question. Good question. I I feel like there's so much that I wanna do. Um but I, I'm I'm trying to figure out a plan how to get there. And my biggest uh hurdle right now is You say hurdle or turtle? Hurdle. Okay. <laughs> My biggest hurdle is is the kids because <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, let's let's air that loud over the speakerphone there. 
it's it well it's not i mean not not in a bad way because just like call uh, it call it family life it doesn't sound so yeah sorry my biggest hurdle is 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 juggling family life those little bastards <laughs> and it's because i'm i'm like stay-at-home dad right now and i try to be productive outside of that but it's it's super hard and uh i would like to do more more just hands-on stuff with people whether that's that's uh intro courses for folks um or whatever it may be doing some more mentoring stuff like that um and maybe that's something i can put together in the future here when when i get a little bit more time on my hands but uh yeah that's that's what i want to do what about you that sounds awesome i also think that we're we're in a place here where even though we haven't always caught the bounces with the hunts i think we're getting to a place where we're refining our video work and kind of like our style we got quite Uh, a bit of video work in the bank right now yeah so i think we're getting to a place where we can actually legitimately start to share some of those experiences in a in a way that's meaningful you know what i mean like when i when i do work with panoramic i i always want it to be meaningful i want people to connect with it i just don't want it to be um, you know, a recap of what we did. Yeah. I, w- I want people to find meaning and purpose and, uh, hopefully it resonates with them. Hopefully they get a few laughs along the way. Cause that's what, that's what I like to do when I'm outside is laugh. Yeah. Um, but you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I, I think we're at a point where the content that we'll be producing is, is going to be impactful, I think. Yeah. And that's, that's, uh, I mean, the whole point of why I, we wanted to start up too, right? And that's that kind of goes back to like one of those first episodes when things went south and I got all worked up about it because like I want to have this to work, to be to be something, to be not put our energy into this and, and people just to walk away thinking it's pure entertainment. And um, although there is a huge entertainment aspect of it, you know, you want that quality, you want that impact. And I'm hoping we're bringing it. Yeah. I tell you right now, if you think we're pure entertainment, just stop following us right now. It's not even, <laughs> I know, I know I'm hilarious. And, <laughs> but if, if you think that we're just here to tell jokes, well, maybe, maybe one knock talk joke. I don't know. Best dad joke. Yeah. You can have a contest for that. I think the real issue with our moose hunt, by the way, um, Here we go. What happened was we didn't shave in any mustaches. Ah, uh, I was rocking. I was growing on my beard for like a month for that. I was like, I need a beard. I need to be warm. But maybe the moose, man, we bit an onion. Like all four of us bit the onion. Yeah, so like, we the I onion. feel I'm going to throw an onion at Sheldon next time I see him here. <laughs> like what kind of, what kind of fucking tradition is this? It's never worked. I bit the onion like, I think I'm one for six on biting the onion or something like that. <laughs> At this point, I'm just biting random onions. Yeah. I'm curious how many onions those guys eat too. I th- I think I'm just a little sour too that uh, haven't been able to connect with uh, Sh- Sheldon for a hunt anyways for this fall. But uh, hopefully, hopefully. One thing I did want to ask though is uh, now that we're we're at 100, have we, have we officially made it? Have we uh, made the cut chase? I don't even know what that means, and I don't even, I don't know. There, there certainly hasn't been a switch that has flipped for me. 
be like we've made the cut i always i just feel like i'm down in the trenches with everybody else just doing my own thing and 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 sharing it and uh just bringing these conversations to to life hopefully um i still think i'm a terrible host for for a podcast (laughs) but uh i still try and make something happen every time every time i'm on here so Anyways, about, smash that like and subscribe button. We're the best. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I think we've got like less bad at things too, which is kind of, or like we've gotten, we've cut out some errors like you've identified too, which has uh, been good to have the show grow and people keep listening. So yeah, can't go wrong with that. And speaking of listening, we aren't going to keep you any longer here. Um and to say it's uh, my honor would be an understatement, but it is my great honor here to uh, to introduce for our 100th episode, three stellar guests. We got Cody Robbins from Lift to Hunt, April Volke from Anchored Outdoors, and uh, the one, the only Jim Shockey. So I hope you enjoy this one as much as we did because it's been a hell of a ride so far. Well, we got to welcome back to the show for a hundredth episode. Uh, been on it for, I think it was episode 91 back uh, a few months ago, but we got on the show, Cody Robbins. Um, are you there, buddy? I'm here, pal. And I'm excited to be here. I have so much fun with you guys and I'm ready to roll. Right on. I was thinking, you know, we've, uh, we've got a pretty good uh, lineup here on our hundredth episode. And I was thinking, you know, we should get Cody on. There's a few things that we didn't touch on in the 91st episode. Uh, especially when it comes to shed hunting. And from what I can tell, you found a lot of sheds in your time. Um, you talked briefly about the very first shed that you found. Tell me, how do you go about finding sheds? And are you always like always looking for, say, mule deer first and you kind of walk across whitetail? Or is it just you go into areas and you know you're going to be finding something somewhere? What are you? What do those areas look like even? Like wh- where are you looking? Sheldon, I just I just kind of back you up just for a second. Um, I... I don't know if you said this, but I thought you said you had a pretty good lineup for the hundredth episode. Did but I but I also thought you said that you have Jim Shockey on here somewhere. He's on here somewhere, yeah. And I actually, yeah, maybe you can talk a little bit about that quick. <laughs> what uh, like what what's your problem? You you just don't have you don't have any connections to get like big names on here, or what's the what's going on? <laughs> yeah, or, oh, I, I know what it is. I know what it is. You guys got Jim on here because he's so old. You're worried he's going to kick the bucket. So you guys just wanted to be like the last guys to interview him. <laughs> is that what it was? We had to, t- yeah, we had to look at it in every, every direction and make sure we're getting every loose end tied up for this hundredth episode. That's sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm sorry for interrupting you, but I, I want to talk about sheds. So briefly hit me with your question again. I just wanted to get that off my system and then I'll hammer you with shed stuff. Sure. Um, yeah. But basically the question was like shed hunting, um, what are you looking for? What areas are you going into? And are you like particularly looking for mule deer versus whitetail sheds? Or are you kind of just going into areas and, and where, you know, where these big deer might be hanging out and looking for them? I, I have favorite spots that historically have been good for mule deer and historically have been good for whitetails. And there's some spots that overlap, but a lot of the times, you know, if, if it's a really special spot, it's usually a special spot for just mealies or just whitetail bucks and something that I've learned. I know trail cameras are a huge scouting tool. Now, you know, almost every single person that sets out in the woods has a trail camera. And that's something that, you know, wasn't happening 20 years ago. Um, so that's your best scouting tool. But to me, 
I love picking sheds and it, it helps, you know, you can't cover all the country in the fall with your trail cameras in the springtime. You can go cover new country and finding a big antler can really steer you in the direction that you want to be come fall when you're looking for a giant special buck. And aside from that, aside from scouting, I am in love with shed hunting. It Since COVID hit, I find it really cool how many people have set out shed hunting that aren't hunters. They're, they weren't shed hunters. They weren't deer hunters. But there wasn't a whole bunch to do except get outdoors. And shed hunting is something that you can do with family. You can take kids. You can go walking. You can go quadding. And shed hunting has become so flipping popular. In one way, it's become hard to deal with because there's so much competition out there. But in another way, it's really cool to see how many people are getting out there and enjoying it and, and finding great big sheds, posting on social media, you know, sharing who doesn't like seeing a picture of a giant antler with a big drop tent and a big flyer out the side. It's, it's candy for all of us. So, yeah, it, um, I, a lot of my whitetail country, you know, I know where I'm going to be focused in whitetail season, but mule deer, that's one of my most important tools of finding big bucks is looking for antlers and finding it's another way for me to age them too. When you find a series off of one buck, you know how old he is. You're not guessing. So when you get a stealth cam pick of him and you have four years of antlers off that deer, you can confidently say to a guy, I'm hunting a seven-year-old buck. He's, he didn't just show up. He might, you know, there's no question whether he's four years old, you know, he's in his prime and shed hunting really helps you do that. Yeah. That's super interesting. Like when you, when you're out shed hunting though, like what areas do you kind of focus in on and maybe you might've touched on it there earlier, but like, are you looking for like, I know you've said in the past, like with mule deer, they kind of wander around like a cow, blind cow, blah, blah, blah. But like when it comes to like shedding their antlers or are there certain areas you're looking for? Like, is there trails? Or are you just kind of wandering like you're a blind cow in the bush too, looking for sheds? Well, it, if you have the time to scout beforehand, before the deer are actually shedding, it's a really good idea to go and was going to tell you if you go there, if mule deer bucks shed in March, it's a great idea to get out there the end of January and go find deer sign and GPS it and, and mark it. That's going to help you a lot when the snow melts in, in country where they don't shed. Um, and, you know, areas that they shed is going to vary based on farmers fields, based on certain crops that are left out. If you want to go and drive roads in the wintertime and do some glassing, you want to look for good, healthy alfalfa fields. Um, you want to look for maybe a farmer left out a crop of standing wheat. Um, you know, there's a whole bunch of things you can do um, that are essentially homework to help you be more successful when you are shed hunting. If you put a little bit of effort in before you're actually going shed hunting. Yeah, for sure. I've, uh, I've shed hunted. I don't shed hunt say like every year I've shed hunted the last few years and I really suck at it. I'm going into areas where I know where the deer were maybe in the fall, but not wintering. I think that's my biggest problem, but um, yeah, I haven't really found any significant sheds yet. Um, and so what does that do for you into the following years? I know you said that finding sequences of, of antlers and horns or whatever, it will um, kind of give you an idea of what's there, etc. What else are you looking for when you're doing that shed hunting? No, like, can you kind of figure out what the deer is doing in, in any way, shape or form? Um, it can be misleading if you're comparing it to hunting season, if you want to pursue them with your bow or your gun, because 
Some deer live within one mile their whole entire lives and other deer will migrate 10 miles to better country to winter. And then in the summertime, they'll be a long ways away. You know, their, their food sources are going to change in different seasons. So you can't necessarily count on a buck being in a certain spot where you found his antlers. One, one thing about, you know, marking spots where you find big antlers, I love going back to the exact same spot year after year. There's collections of antlers I found off of single bucks. There was one particularly off a buck that I called fishtails. And I found, I think, six or seven antlers off one deer. And every one of them were within 300 yards of each other. It's, you know, certain deer will have safe zones in the wintertime where they have the right food that they need. They have the right shelter that they need and they feel safe. Predators aren't bothering them. And they'll drop their antlers year after year on the same ridge or the same valley. And I honestly, I love picking up series of antlers off bucks and watching them grow and watch how, watching how they progress. It's one of my, it's one of my gems. It's one of my favorite things to do. That That is quite amazing. I'm, I'm interested to hear, um, you know, you talked about scouting in the fall or the like late winter and, uh, scouting out deer and then going there in the spring when the snow melts to, to look for the sheds. But do you ever come across a set of sheds and then try and target that buck the next, the next fall? Has that ever happened to you? Absolutely. One time when I was, uh, 19 or 20, just before I started working for Jim, I found one of the biggest sets of whitetail sheds I've ever found in my life. And it was in new country. I was scouting, trying to find big bucks. And I found a 191 inch set of five by five whitetail sheds. They're just absolutely massive. And I went back that fall. My, my focus was to find that buck and hunt that buck and focus on that buck. And I never saw him alive. And that, that comes down to where, you know, you might go back to where you found those antlers and you might find that buck the first night you go look for him. That might be his house. That might be where he spends 100% of his time around the calendar. Or it might have just been a place that he migrated to and his home safe zone in the summer and fall months could be 10 miles away. So it, you can't quite count on it. But I, I love the challenge of finding a big set of antlers and going and seeing if I can find them. And finding those big set of antlers, like that must almost be like winning the lottery, knowing that, A, you've, you come across a nice big buck and then all of a sudden you find it sheds and you're like, all right on it made it through made it through the fall nobody got them so now we can maybe keep focusing on that um you must find that quite often then right absolutely it's it's uh pretty exciting when you hunt a big deer and he disappears like sleepy the the big buck that i hunted for four years and created the sleepy story it two different years we had no idea if he survived and then you're out cruising around in the winter in the crusty snow in the minus 40 and you have no idea if he's still out there. You have no idea if he's in someone's garage or if he's at a taxidermy shop and you just haven't seen him floating around on the internet yet. And then all of a sudden there's this antler laying there and it, the emotions that hit you when you realize he did survive, he hasn't winter killed, Hunter didn't take him home in the fall and he's right back out there or he could be right back out there for you to find in the summer and hunt in the fall again. It's very exciting stuff. Fast forwarding and. I mean, talking about sheds, we could probably talk about that for a little bit, but I kind of wanted to touch base with you on um, a little bit of scouting um, when it comes to white-tailed deer. And I know it's kind of maybe mule deer is your passion, white-tailed deer is your secondary, but what are like some of the tips and tricks that maybe you can share with us about uh, scouting for big white-tail um, in, the, in the prairie regions, I guess? Well, I would say 
it's never a bad thing to scout early. Um, if you, if you get out in July, you know, if about July 10th, the deer developed enough that you can identify them, you know exactly what they're going to grow. Um, and they're out there and you'll find bucks that are normally nocturnal that are out in a lot of daylight, you know, during July, you know, they're not pressured. There's barely any darkness. There's only four, four and a half hours of darkness at that time. Any, <clears throat> there's only four or four and a half hours of darkness at that time of year. And you're going to find those bucks in daylight that are otherwise nocturnal. And you can learn so much from them. If you wait to go scouting in September, October, you know, if you're a rifle hunter, a lot of those times those deer are already nocturnal and they'll only be visible to someone in the first 10 minutes of daylight in the morning or the last 10 minutes of daylight in the evening. And if you don't know where to focus, it's like winning a lottery, actually finding them. So you can, you can learn a lot in the early summer months and beyond that setting up trail cams, you know, stealth cams. And another thing, a lot of people focus on baiting or mineral or something something that I've really enjoyed is finding really good beat down natural game trails where you don't have a mineral, like you don't have a bait, you don't have anything laying on the ground to attract them. And you just put a trail camera on that trail back in the trees, you know, seven or eight yards off, be strategic on your angle and see what you can capture walking down that trail. And so many times I've had a camera on a trail and I've had a camera on an attractant and I have no pictures of a big giant buck on that attractant, but I have a couple pictures of that big giant buck 30 yards away, just on a random game trail. And that's something that's really fun that you can try and experiment with. And you might learn a lot more about your area, about an animal that you don't even think exists. So it's something you can try. I, th I think that that's kind of one thing Sheldon and I kind of talked about too, is like how trail cameras are great tools, but at the same time, um, you know, if you do just have the one set up in that area, that's all you're capturing is just that one trail. And there is a lot more going on in that, in those woods besides that, that one point. So, um, for sure. Yeah. Right on. And so when we do a lot of scouting, like, I mean, I've been doing, I don't know, I guess in the last couple of years, I've scouted a little bit different where I kind of focus my energy on certain pieces of property. Um, when you are kind of focusing in on like, let's just say, one section of property where you're going to hunt year after year. Would you suggest setting up your trail cams on maybe those same trails where you were getting pictures the year before, or would you almost take your cameras and be like, I know deer hitting that trail. And as long as there's deer here, let's put these cameras in different spots. And maybe I can find, you know, just like Chase said, different animals in different places. Do you ever try that strategy at all? For sure. I think thinking outside the box and always keeping it fresh is a great idea. You know, if you, if you have one particular spot that you, put a camera year after year, there is a chance that you get a, a great big buck as he grows and, and gets older and wiser, he may avoid you. So it's, it's good to shake things up. And it, I, I've done it before and many, many times I've learned of bucks that I didn't even think existed there. And one thing that triggered me on this, um, there's been lots of times where you have a, a stealth cam set up and you think you know everything that lives there and then you go sit in the blind and you see a buck walk by you've never seen before. You had no idea he was there and you're not even, you don't even have him on the hit list or the no list. You, you, you have no idea what's cooking. So it's, it's always great. Don't wear blinders, be wide open to new ideas and always be experimenting. It's a good yeah, plan. We've, we've had uh, a couple other guys on, we're talking about um, trail cam placements. And the one thing that I've 
I'm going to try a little bit differently this year. And it's not about necessarily placement, but um, sometimes I kind of get frustrated because I'll get, you know, a hundred pitchers over a month of just does and, and nothing really that I'm, I'm really interested in. But at, at the same time, you also got to think like, man, if there's does in the area, eventually those bucks are going to be coming around, sniffing around in, in the rifle season or whatever in rut, right? Um, For sure. But yeah, that's, that's super cool. Um, the other thing I was going to mention or ask you about on this uh, quick little segment would, would be, you kind of mentioned it with baits and minerals. What do you, what is your thoughts behind it? I mean, do you generally use baits or, or salt lakes in Saskatchewan or what are your thoughts behind that? I, I see both sides of it. I, you know, you hear people stating their concerns or how they're anti baiters. And I, I see their side of it. I understand some people say, well, it's cheating. That's not hunting. And I get that. And I also see the probating side. Um, one thing that I've learned over the years, when I started hunting when I was 12 years old, there was nobody baiting. Um, our method of hunting was going out and pushing bush. Okay, so you take two or three people, you strategically line up a drive, and you have people on post waiting. And when I was a kid, just in a few years that I focused a lot on pushing bush, you know, it, it's, I, I don't like touching on this, but there's so many times that you misjudge a deer. Okay. He comes running out. You have no idea what he is. You think he's a big buck. Your heart's pounding. You want to be a big buck hunter. You shoot the deer, you walk up to it and you're disappointed. To me, that's, it's a shame because if, if you, if you're lucky enough to harvest the deer, you should never be disappointed. That animal's given his life. But being completely honest, there's definitely times it happens where someone shot something that they didn't, they were a little bit misled or didn't quite know what they were shooting and they're disappointed. And that, to me, when you're sitting in a controlled environment and you're, you're sitting over a bait pile, there's going to be people that say it's cheating. On the other side of it, you can take a kid hunting who's 12 or 13 years old. You can compare those two experiences. You take a kid 12 or 13 years old, you take them pushing bush. They're probably going to miss 90% of the deer they shoot at if the deer are running by out of control. It's going to be hard for them to judge. There could be an opportunity to wound an animal and possibly lose it, but you can wound an animal and lose them at any time. But if you take them back to a bait or a controlled environment, you can, you're better at what, how do I want to say this? You're, you can manipulate, uh, give me a sec. I'm missing a word that I really want to use. Uh, to me, oh yeah, to me, you can be way more selective and way more in control in those moments. You can take a 13-year-old kid who might not be totally sure about hunting, okay? He, he might not know if he's going to love it. And his first experience may be the deciding factor whether he loves hunting. You can have a buck walk in who's two years old. You know it's a small buck. You know he's not going to be totally thrilled and he would like to shoot something bigger. Or maybe that's exactly what he wants. But you know what that deer is. You know how old he is. You can premeditate your plans. You can be ready. And you can give that child an opportunity to take a controlled shot with a rest, standing in close quarters. To me, situations like that create huge positives for baiting. Um, I, again, I see both sides of it. I'm not, I'm not totally pro-baiting. I'm not totally against baiting. I'm not, I'm not on either side of it. I think that if there's hunting regulations in your area and you're following the rules, so 
if you're allowed to bait, then go and bait and do things ethically and follow the guidelines for your area. If you're in an area where there's no baiting, then don't bait and follow the rules. But when people bash baiting, I think there's a pretty good argument to throw back at them. And when people bash not baiting, I think there's a good argument there too. There's both sides to both of it. I, I myself personally, for being selective and really being in control and giving youngsters and beginners the opportunity, I think baiting is awesome. And, it, and another thing for outfitters, you look at outfitters in Saskatchewan and Northern forests, there's a lot of country that's, it'd be really tough for them to make a living and to have successful hunts for their clients, which generates money and brings money into Canada, into our provinces. And I think that's important too. And if you, if you took baiting away from them, I, I think that's a negative. And that's kind of where I'm at on the whole situation. Yeah, there's lots of good points you made there. And like, even just like getting back to like the kid thing, taking a kid out. I know for like myself, I have a preference. I know this is kind of a little bit different, but I have a preference. I'd rather sit in a tree stand than on a ground blind, just because like I literally just like looking at deer sometimes, you know, and just getting out there. And if you can see, if you're like sitting on the side of ag land, for, for instance, and you can see, you know, 300 yards in archery season, but you can see deer moving around. That's it's super exciting, right? So it's and it's and it kind of makes me think about the, the bait situation. Like you kind of put it in perspective, is like you can get a kid there where like they can actually enjoy some some benefits of that, right? And like even like a little bit of management. I know if you could get into like a whole bunch of different topics, like bears or whatever. But when you see these animals coming in, whatever for a few minutes every night, you kind of are getting an understanding on what's there, you know. And even if you only had that kid for a couple hours on a saturday afternoon to come out to this bait and you know he's gonna have a chance at you know a couple does and a couple small young deer i mean of course it's a great argument right i i think i agree with you on on the 50 50 guy when it comes to the baiting thing i've never done it but i can see that definite benefits from it sure I, i think in closing on that topic i think what's important to us as sportsmen and outdoorsmen i think we all need to support each other i i think people jumping on the anti baiting wagon and attacking the baiters that's not a positive thing for any of us and the people jumping on the wagon and attacking the anti-baiters i think moving forward we need to all work together and if we're following the rules we need to support one another you you hear guys talking about well crossbow hunters aren't real hunters or bow bow or rifle hunters aren't as cool as bow hunters if you're following the rules and guidelines in your area go hunting there doesn't need to be any part of it that's negative we don't need to tear each other down we need to work as a team and support each other no matter what we decide, no matter what we choose. We all need to follow the rules and we need to be an army of people that stand up and are passionate for the outdoors. And I think that's what's most important right now. Yeah, absolutely. Chase had an interesting question. I think I'm going to let him talk about it quickly before we let you go, Cody. But like, um, you know, we kind of talked about looking for sheds, scouting, a little bit of baiting. And, and now I think the, the relationship that you have personally, when you, when it comes to certain animals or things that you're targeting, uh, maybe Chase, you can take that away. If you got it framed up better, I couldn't really remember the question, but. Um, I, th- I think Cody kind of answered most of it on the, throughout his, his, uh, conversation there. Um, and, and just speaking on the, the relationship he, he kind of builds with it, you know, chasing these, these, uh, phenomenal animals and, and whether it's finding them in uh, shed hunting season or, you know, scouting them out in, in uh, earlier in July kind of thing. 
so I, I, I don't know how to uh, frame that one up, but, but I, I did want to touch on like the, the whole um, baiting scenario and, you know, Cody did say the ethics of, of stuff and the comparables there. And I, and I'm, I'm, I'm one of the guys who 50, 50 on the fence kind of thing. And I 100% agree to the fact that in the outdoor community, we need to be unified in a lot of ways. And I think it's, it's the most important thing is for us not to look at the differences as disagreements to have positive conversations about educated conversations about these topics. And I think, uh, yeah, what you said there was, was bang on there, Cody. Moving on, Cody, um, before we do let you go, I need to ask you one more quick question about a trip. And I, I only ask it because I am a huge moose hunter. Um, it's probably one of my favorite games to go after. Um, our, our panoramic outdoors, our logo is, is the moose. So I want to know, a little bit about the Playboy. What was it called the Playboy Mansion moose that you and Playboy uh, Cameron, Mansion, yeah, play, yep. uh, yeah, that you and Richie, uh, Cameron and Richie went on. Tell us briefly about that quickly before we let you go, and uh, just tell me maybe like the experience. That was a whole new lake for you, a whole new area, was it not? Yes, yeah, so we we flew up to or we drove up and flew into the bush to an an unknown lake that had never really been hunted in like twenty five or thirty years. All we knew was there was an abandoned old trapper's cabin and we were hunting with Joel Wilkinson's Caesar Lake Outfitters and he had no room for us, but he's a really good guy and he's always accommodated me and helped me with my show to get content and given me hunting opportunities. And he said, I would never fly someone in there because the cabin's so run down and the lake is so high that it can freeze early. So it's a dangerous exploratory adventure. If you and cameraman Richie wanted to fly in there and try and hunt a moose and be the guinea pigs and see if it was worthwhile, you're welcome to. And I said, okay, we're up for it. What do we need to do? He said, take some groceries, meet at the float plane dock on such and such a day, pay the float plane guy. I'll meet you there. I'll give you your, your outfitted allocations. So you're, you're legal. Everything's good. I'll give Richie a guy's license and you guys can fly in there. So we'll go in there. We fly into this little lake. We get there. The cabin hasn't been touched in like 20 years and the one wall is ripped off the door is ripped off there's six inches of porcupine rat and grizzly bear feces in the bottom there's multiple like 21 percent of noah's ark is living in this cabin when we get there and we walk in the cabin and it is nasty like there's some old supplies from 20 years ago but it is shrapnelized the the boards that made like the bunk beds are chewed off and ripped off the wall. The door is gone. And the only thing that's intact in the whole entire cabin is a Playboy centerfold of a lovely lady from 1986 or something. So as soon as we get in there, we're like, okay, we're calling this the Playboy match. So and my nickname was Hugh and Richie's nickname. Well, I don't know. I don't think Richie even got a nickname because he's just not cool enough. But anyways, going back, Richie and I, we get, we find a hammer, a bunch of rusty nails. We spend the first day rebuilding this cabin and getting it livable. And we spend five days in there. Now, let me circle back and reiterate that we're hunting country that hadn't been touched in like 20 some years. And it was insane. And I shot literally my dream moose. And you know, everyone's going to think, oh, dream moose. He's got to be 75 inches. He's got to be like that crazy benchmark. He was 50, 56 inches wide. You know, he wasn't huge, but
but he was massive heavy. He was old. He had four drop tines, like gnarly character, a bull that I'd always hoped for. I love character bulls or character bucks or anything with character. And we had so much fun. And it, it's funny that you mentioned cameraman Richie. I want to share a funny little story with you. Just finishing up on the Playboy Mansion. Richie is a nut job. He has like these nightmares, not even nightmares, but he has these weird dreams. And he's like a little three-year-old kid. This is my cameraman. He'll, he'll have a dream and he'll wake up and like the dream will be over. It'll be five minutes later. He'll be wide awake. The lights will be on. It's done. The chapter's done in your life. And Richie, I don't know if it's like a pride thing, but he will not admit that he had a dream and that the dream's over and it's real life now. And it didn't happen. He'll fight you to the grave. He'd fist fight you on what just happened. And there's no way to prove him otherwise. The middle of the night in the Playboy Mansion, we've gone through cleaning grizzly bear poop out of the cabin, chasing porcupines away, lots of crazy adventures, like nightmare type stuff, living in a grizzly bear's den, okay? Night number three, I'm sound asleep in my sleeping bag, probably the first time I'm getting a good sleep. And this is what I wake up to, I'm sound asleep. I'm in the fetal position, I'm dreaming about like bunnies, okay? My eyes are closed. This is what I wake up to. It's Richie cow calling, hunting moose at like two o'clock in the morning in the cabin. It's like petrifying. So first of all, I'm dreaming that a moose is like running me over. And then I jump up and this like 74 billion decibel cow moose in heat is just giving her three feet from me. So I find my Cyclops and I, I put it on my head and I turn it on and look. And there's Richie just passionately bellering out this cow in heat in his sleeping bag, sitting up in his bag. And I'm like, Richie, what the hell is going on? And he wakes up and looks me in the eyes and he's like, oh, hey, Code, there's a big bull moose right over there. And I'm like, no, there's no big bull moose over there. It's three o'clock in the morning. We're in the Playboy Mansion. We're sound asleep. There's no moose. He's like, no, really? It's like a 54 incher. And he's, oh, there's another one right over there. And we're in like a totally enclosed plywood cabin. There isn't even windows. I fought with the mangy little bugger for like five minutes and just went back to bed. And that's just like one little walk in life with cameraman Richie. He has these crazy off the wall dreams and he'll fight you to the grave that it really happened. Like even two days later, he will never admit that it didn't happen. But anyways, that's, that's a moment that I took away from the Playboy Mansion was Richie's crazy moose dream. It was, it was a fun, well, not so fun, funny night. <laughs> We're all laughing here on the other side of the microphones here, but um, Cody, I just would really like to just take the chance um, before we let you go, just to say thank you, uh, not only for coming on uh, the first time, but coming on for a hundredth episode. It's been a, a grind for us at Panoramic to, to put this all together, and we really appreciate you taking the time and um, getting that moose story. It was one of the ones I wanted to ask you in the initial first episode of episode ninety-one. So I'm glad I got to hear a little bit more insight on what happened uh, in that big mansion in the middle of nowhere. Oh, I, you know what? I'm excited that you guys asked me to be on here. It's awesome that you guys are blazing your own trail. It's cool that you've hit your hundredth episode. Very admirable. So excited to listen to you guys. And um, I'm just very thankful that you asked me to be on here. Right on. Chase, you got any final words before we uh, let Cody go? Not much, but thanks again, man, for coming on. I uh, really appreciate it, and uh, keep on fighting the good fight, bud. I, I will, pal, and you guys too. It's um, it's a great life we're all living, and let's just get more people out there so they can enjoy the same stuff that we do. Right on, I agree.
And thanks for joining us for the 100th episode here, April Vokey. Did I say that correctly? Yeah, you did. Thank you for leaving the L out. <laughs> <laughs> so many people write it as Vokey, but no, it's just Vokey. Um, where are you joining us today from, April? Today, I am from the lovely lockdown in Sydney, Australia. You have a, a very... Canada. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have a you have an incredible looking office back there. I gotta say, it's it's definitely an upgrade from our offices here. So, <laughs> um, we're striving. Anyways, we're here to chat with you a little bit about uh, some conservation and obviously fly fishing. Anybody that knows you, you know, follows you along. You you have this uh, an overall outdoorsy page interests. But a very, very heavy fly fishing section, obviously. So, um, before we dive into that, though, I want to just chat a little bit about the five burning questions here that we're going to ask you to kind of get to know you a little bit better. Okay. And uh, I've been listening to quite a few of your podcasts, and I'd be remiss if I didn't ask this question What is your favorite whiskey? Oh, that's embarrassing um, <laughs> because I don't really know that much about whiskey and I'm really just a Jack Daniels girl. Is that even whiskey? No. That's, uh, yeah, it? that's that's like uh, bourbon whiskey. Yeah. Sour mash, you uh, think, something like that? That's all, you know, that's what I drank when I was younger. And so to date, it just brings me back to my young, fun days. Can you find um, a bottle of that in Australia right now? It's very expensive. Our bar is stocked, but... Oh, nice. Yeah, Bruce here is very, very expensive. Oh, really? That's yeah. interesting. Oh, yeah, they get you. With the duty and all that fun stuff. Yeah. Jack Daniels is a good answer. There's nothing wrong with a good uh, JD and Coke. That's for sure. JD and ginger, I'm going to say. Oh. I'm actually a JD on the rocks kind of gal, but in certain bars here in Australia, they will not let you have hard alcohol on the rocks. I'm totally throwing Australia under the bus right now as the nanny, <laughs> like New South Wales is a nanny state, but they make you mix it with water or mix it with something because they obviously don't want you getting hammered too fast. No so. kidding. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. That, that's the first should, time I've heard that. Uh, they should almost do that in Canada for some reason. It <laughs> might uh, save a lot of problems at the local uh, watering holes. Yeah, maybe. I don't, I don't know. I think <laughs> or I need maybe to it won't be as fun. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it makes any difference. You know, it just right. means that you have watered down shitty drinks. Yeah. That's true. You just true. order another one faster. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Um, question number two, one last meal. What would be on your plate? Oh, I can I couldn't prep for any of these questions. Uh anything with French fries. Nice. Comfort food. Yeah. yeah, maybe a crab. I had crab last night. Yeah, a crab and french fries. Do you guys get some uh, some crab out of the, the local water there? Oh, yeah. We've got mud crabs. They're amazing. Nice. I like that. Um, one last concert to go check out. I'm not sure if you're a mu uh, music buff at all, but uh, who would you be going to see? Oh, my gosh. You really throw... Ah, oh, Brandy Carlisle. Brandy Carlisle. I'm unfamiliar. Is that uh, Australian or... No, she's American. Really? She's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, she's got, or, or oh, I was going to say Orlando Del Rey, but maybe not in concert. Yeah, Brandy Carlisle, for sure. I'm writing that down right now. I'm not that into the flashy concert. I'm going to check it yeah. out. Is there any fish that you haven't gone after that you want to go catch? A fish? Oh, sorry, I cut out a fish that I have to go after? Yeah. Yeah, that I haven't caught yet. Uh, 
maybe Nile perch would be fun or black nice. bass. I'd like to do some fishing in New Guinea. Nice, nice. Have you caught a channel catfish on the fly rod yet? I've caught catfish on the fly. I don't know if they're, well, I'm, I don't know which species of catfish Nice. it was. But yeah, in Bolivia, I went down to Bolivia and what the sole purpose was to see if we could catch these big golden dorado with a, a two-handed rod, what we call a spay rod. Mm -hmm. And then in the process, I ended up catching this really big catfish, which is apparently quite rare. rare. And it was really, really fun. Oh, nice. Yeah, I, I've seen some uh, some videos of uh, fishing down that way before, and their catfish are massive down there. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a good time. Why? Uh, what about you? Are you a big catfish guy? Not in Manitoba. Yeah, so we're the channel catfish of uh, north of capital of North America here, I think. Oh, really? That's the handle they give us anyways. But, uh, but yeah, I've recently uh, kind of – we used to fish them lots with, uh, you know, conventional – methods and i just got into fly fishing for them uh this summer so it's been pretty awesome yeah so you're just fishing deep and big yeah you know we go after them with like uh uh woolly bugger kind of thing or uh ddh leech works well nothing nothing too huge but uh yeah 10 weight rod is kind of the the go-to but um yeah they're lots of fun to to hook into especially in the spring when they're and a neat fact for you chase before you go on i just kind of googled it in selkirk which is by lockport i guess they does call themselves the catfish capital of the world of the world yep that's what they call themselves i don't know if that's official but <laughs> yeah i don't know how you actually get that handle is that like giving yourself a nickname kind of thing maybe i don't know possibly okay our last uh question of the five burners if you weren't uh fishing what would you be doing? Go hunting. Hunting? Yeah, but yeah, every day of the week. Awesome. What's your or stalking something, whether it's shed hunting, scouting, looking for deer, yeah, hunting yeah. for deer, something else there. What's your favorite thing to uh, to hunt? Deer. Deer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in Aust in Australia, we've got all sorts of species, but what is most prominent around here is the fallow, and I just have this real sickness for fallow deer. Have you ever heard them in the rut? I haven't heard of fallow deer in the rut, no. Oh, they do this like, <laughs> right? This crazy, <laughs> you don't call, I'm obviously horrible at, call, at being a male, like being a buck, but, and you don't call them like that. You just, you call them like a female, but yeah, yeah. with the doe call. But yeah, they are so amazing. And so, you know, you, you're calling them with your doe call and they start making that noise and they get closer and closer. And you can see they've got this big lump in their throat that goes up and down. And then, yeah, I mean, your average shot when you're out there during the rut, I'd say my, my average shot is seven yards. Whoa. Yeah, they come real close to you. No kidding. So you're archery hunting them, I'm assuming? Yeah, I just got my firearms license down here, and my gun is currently in customs. So it's going to be a whole new experience. I've actually never shot a deer with a gun before, so it's going to no be way. a whole new learning curve. Well, yeah, because I started bow hunting, um, oh, I don't know, so I held my daughter three, so maybe seven years ago. And to me at the time, it was, it was, I thought it was more kind, right? I was still mm -hmm. in that, I was surrounded by a bunch of bow hunters. And so I just assumed that that was um, the most ethical way of hunting. And then I started to open my mind up a little bit. And by the time I was comfortable shooting a gun, then I had a daughter. And so I hunted with her a lot. And then obviously I couldn't hunt with a gun with her. So I stuck with archery. And then when I moved down here, 
same thing. I had to stick with archery because I didn't have a gun and the property owners wanted me to stick with a bow. And now everything's finally starting to change. She's old enough. I don't have her. I've got my license and the gun, the property owners are happy for me to bring out a gun. So right. it's going to be a good year when the rut kicks off again next year. It's a little more difficult to, uh, to acquire a firearm down in Australia, uh, Australia there. Um, am I correct? That's what I Yeah, heard. it was similar to Canada. Canada yeah. took me, it's been a while since I got my license in Canada, but yeah, it took me quite a while to get it there too. But here... It was a lot, there was a lot of back and forth. It's tricky because they had just changed some regulations right in the middle of, of when I was getting, doing the process. So I don't know if it's always that difficult, but for me, it was, it's been, it's been two years of trying to get it. Hmm. Interesting. Or at least get the gun here. And yeah, there's a whole lot of work that goes into it. Cause then to buy your gun, you can't just take your firearms license and go and purchase your gun. You have to apply for a permit to acquire. And then that only lasts for a certain amount of time. So you need to find your gun within that time. And if you're exporting, the, the paperwork for that is crazy. Or I'm sorry, if you're importing. So there's been mm -hmm. a, it's been a big process, but we are here. It's here waiting for me. And we're just in the final bits of paperwork. No kidding. That must be exciting. I can, uh, I can, I, I got to say though, like archery hunting has to be like, if we're comparing hunting to fishing, archery hunting has to be like the, the fly fishing of hunting as well with yeah. like the gear and the tactics and stuff like that. So it's, it's, uh, I can see how you kind of maybe were into that archery scene prior than even getting your, your firearms license. Yeah. They seem to go hand in hand more and more these days. I'm starting to see there's a lot of parallels and a lot of my fly fishing buddies have moved over that way. So. Oh, no way. That's interesting. Yeah. No kidding. So I wanted to have you on and chat today, um, a little bit about your perspective of the fly fishing industry you know you've, you've really blazed your own trail in the industry here over the past um i don't know how many years have you been fly fishing now do you think 20 20 wow incredible in the industry for 18 no 17 and you I started guiding when i was 21 i'm 38 now by the time that this airs i'll be almost 39 i started i started guiding at 21 so and i started at a fly shop before then so yeah it's been 20 years oh, oh my gosh man, that's awesome <laughs> yeah that's incredible and the, the really some of the like one of the cool things that i find about you is you have these incredible conversations on your podcast with like very formidable guests uh in the fly fishing industry young and old and i feel like you have this this opportunity to to get like this really interesting look into what the fly fishing industry was and where it is and kind of where it's going now. Mm. Um, what are, what are some of the things that, uh, like as it's evolved that you think that, that some, I don't know, major things that, uh, has changed in the industry, uh, for the better besides like, I guess like tactics in general, but like, is the, is the overall thought around like conservation and, and, uh, habitat management, is that, change or is that something that's always been like deeply instilled in fly fishing so the internet changed everything looking back it depends on where how, how you want to pick it apart if you want to pick it apart to you know how tolerant we are as anglers to conservation to money to reach and demographic i mean there's all sorts of ways we could pick this conversation apart but you know the internet has done some wonderful things in that it has brought more people into fly fishing 
some will argue maybe it's brought too many people into fly fishing because now with with trophy shots and everybody trying to go ahead and get that you know fish of a lifetime which is totally understandable we all want the fish of a lifetime even before the internet existed um, but back then it wasn't flashed in your face so often so if you only caught a six or eight pound steelhead you were happy with that because you weren't constantly seeing 20 pounders thrown at you um, and I guess that's my roundabout saying way of saying that um, the internet has been great to get people into it, but it has also set a level of expectations that may not be healthy for the fishery. You know, the other thing about conservation specifically is if you really wanted to be taken seriously as an advocate for the environment, then you had to go to meetings and to rallies and to government um, sit downs, you know, to sit down with DFO and hear what they were thinking. You had to actually be involved to know that you're gaining any ground. Whereas now, you know, if somebody reshares a post or adds their name onto an easy petition and thinks that the job is done. But the reality is they still they need to be more involved. So I see from a conservation stance, it's been great because we can spread the word, but it's also been detrimental in that a lot of people, again, the expectations and the bar is set that if you just share a post, you've done your job. But mm-hmm. that's not exactly case so there are wins there are ups and you know highs and lows and and pros and cons in all of the um aspects of you know how how it's changed but i'd say overall it's been a healthy change overall right do you think do you think the uh i mean the extra exposure though really brings a lot more value to uh certain sensitive waterways or waterways that might be at risk to uh, just to increase the value of that. And like, if there was um, like a steelhead stream or, or a, a amazing trout stream, how much impact would the internet have on say, like stopping something detrimental that, that might be happening, happening like development or mining or logging or something like that? It depends on the waterway and the politics behind it for the most, and how many people it, it um, it impacts, right? So if, let me see, this is such a huge topic for a short podcast. Um, uh, I don't know where to really start on this. I, it, it just depends. So if you were, if everybody, let's break it down like this. Let's try to keep it simple. If the ma- if the vast majority had an attention span of longer than eight seconds, I would have a lot more hope and probably um, a lot more optimism when it comes to this sort of discussion. But because the average person nowadays does have such a short attention span. I don't know how much weight it carries. What I do know is this, if I have a system that I really love in British Columbia and they're going to go ahead and they're going to put a power plant on it. And that fishery maybe only has a hundred fish on it. And I've since stopped fishing it because I know as an adult that I probably shouldn't be fishing a fishery with 100 fish. If I really go out of my way to blast that this fishery is, or this river is amazing because it has these fish and really push it out there, I'm going to say that I could probably rally up 70% of my following to do a quick post about it. Is the government going to listen to their 10-second reshare or repost? Probably not. But I know what I've just done is told 200 very avid anglers in British Columbia that there are fish in that river and that they're not going to listen to me that they shouldn't fish it, and they're going to be on top of those fish. And so, yes, maybe I got 20,000 people to 
to post something that had an eight attention, you know, eight second attention span. And the government doesn't put any weight on or merit into that at all because they know that it took them one second to do that or to actually, you know, be an advocate. But those 200 people who are going to spend the next 10 years of their lives bashing that system, uh, I don't know if the trade off is worthwhile. So it's so dependent. But if you take something like Alaska, now that is a very broad situation or broad geographical region, right? So let's look at Pebble Mine. So even though, I mean, really it is quite small when you think about it in the grand scheme of things, but that's the sort of thing where we can really focus on trying to beat it and bring in the, um, the eyes of the public onto it because there, it does touch so many more people and the government, and because it touches so many more people, they're more likely to put more time and energy into it longer than eight seconds, for example, mm-hmm. and the government's going to have, um, have to pay more attention. So again, it's so specific on the region and the fishery that we're looking at. Definitely. Does that make sense? I'm trying to summarize it, but yeah, no, that, that that makes a lot of sense for sure. And, uh, I, I really like the, the, the kind of comparison and the, the weight when you did there on the, uh, say like the local stream that, that only has a hundred fish in it. Um, how would you go about handling that situation though? Is there, is there anything that, that you would do to like try to help that, try to save it if it's not putting something out on social media to get all the attention? Yeah, I've been in that situation. And so I found that the best thing for me to do was to team up with an organization who focuses specifically on, not on that fishery, but maybe in that niche. So maybe a steelhead organization like the Steelhead Society of British Columbia. And so what I've done in the past there is tried to raise money with my my large audience. And even though they might not know specifically which fishery we're talking about, they know the region or the species that we're fighting for. And they know who the bad guy is, if you wanted to mm-hmm. you know, keep in layman's terms. And so trying to raise money there to put towards something like the Steelhead Society of British Columbia, which can then go ahead and do the really heavy lifting with the people who matter, the eyes that matter, the money that matters, the politicians who matter, the biologists that matter. So that's probably what I would recommend to people is, is to, rather than looking for the fame and glory of your 10 second fame on social media, um, think outside the box, maybe use that if you have a large following to raise money, but then team up with an organization that you trust who's focused, whose main focus is solely on, that region or fishery or species. Totally. Awesome. And do you think, do you think, uh, these at risk, um, ecosystems right now are, have a better shot of making it compared to say like 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, or is it still kind of depends on the situation? It always depends. There's always an asterisk beside everything that I'm saying has a big star beside it right now, right? Like it, de- it depends. Do I think that we can gain more ground? I don't know. Um, I don't know. I don't know what to think anymore because I've seen the masses rally for something and I've seen it still be passed through. I think that that all of our rallying and social media outbursts may have had some weight a few years ago, mm-hmm. but I think that it's starting, you know, you become numb to it. And, um, and I think that, I think that it'll be interesting to see the weight of social media, um, in the next few years and see how that works politically, because we've all seen what's happened. Out, even outside of fishing, you know, just look at the internet and politics in general. 
it tends to get cloudy real fast and and people become numb. So it's no different whether it's money or fishing. I mean, really money and fishing, it's half the time, it's the same thing anyway. So people are becoming numb, attention spans are becoming shorter. And I'll be very curious to see what happens in the next few years. That's interesting. I'm, I'm kind of curious here. Um, you, I'm not sure if you alluded to it earlier while we were recording or prior to, but uh, you do have a daughter and I'm curious to what your answer would be to this is if your daughter was to go down a similar path or the same path that, that you are right now, what are some words that you would pass along to her? Well, it's funny. She came home a couple days a week. She goes to like a play date. Uh, it's an early child thing so she can have socialization with other kids. I'm not going to call it school because she's four years old, but she came home really upset because when she went to sit down at the table of boys who she thought were her friends, they told her for the first time ever, she's heard no girls allowed, right? Which of course to so many of us, it's just, that's what happens when you're a kid, you hear no girls allowed. And I had to find a way to tell that it was going to be okay. And that it's all right for boys to have their own table. And I, which is maybe goes against, you know, what the world is trying to push on us now with diversity and inclusion and all of those things. But the reality of the matter is there are going to be tables where girls are not allowed and you have to be okay with that and just go on and be happy at your own table or create your own table. And also, and, and you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to navigate this conversation without telling her, you know, you just need to be a badass and up your skills and be <laughs> as good as they are. So it's been a tricky, it's been tricky to navigate it so early. Um, but I have tried to let her know that it has nothing that she's done wrong. And sometimes it's just that there's no room at the table and that's fine. You go to another table and you create your own experience at that table. Um, when she gets older, we'll have to navigate it a little differently because it is important to me that she understands that, there are going to be lots of situations where um, she's not invited or wanted and she's going to just have to push through it and not care what anyone thinks. So it'll be interesting over the next few years as well to see what happens there. Oh man. I, I, uh, I couldn't imagine with like uh, some of the stuff that you've had to deal with on, on your, your journey through, through this whole stuff. And, and uh, just, I mean, no doubt in my mind that you just keep your head down and just, do what you do best. Yeah, it's funny looking back now because now there's this mega push, right? Of, of like I said, inclusion and diversity, which is great. And I wish that I had it then, but looking at what used to happen back then versus now, it, I mean, again, a lot of this was only 10, 15 years ago. It's just such a stark, it's just such a stark contrast. Been so much has changed in 15 years. And yeah, I don't think, I don't think people would ever believe some of the stories that I have. Yeah. No, it goes deep. It goes deep. It, it's, it's changed. The world has changed a lot. So it's hard for me when I see a lot of these men and women out there who are upset at the negative comments on their Instagram. And it's like, oh, dude, you have no idea. That's just someone who doesn't like the way that you're holding the fish, which it, everyone is entitled to their own opinion. But the sense of the bullying and how it used to be compared to what is perceived as bullying today is very different. And so as a parent... I don't know if you, I don't know if you guys have kids, but as a parent, I'm going to have to navigate that carefully because I don't want to plague her or poison her mind with my past experiences, knowing that the bar has just been set so much higher for kids nowadays. So I'm going to have to navigate that carefully 
and let her know the reality about life. But I think I also need to come to grips that the reality has changed. People aren't quite as horrible as they used to be, or at least they're not allowed to be quite as horrible as they used to be publicly. Yeah, no kidding. Wow, that's that's unbelievable. Well, April, uh, th this conversation has been fantastic, although very short, and I'm sure we could talk about both these topics for hours but um we will keep this to where it's at right now and i want to thank you again for joining us today and uh yeah just continue being awesome and and uh being an amazing advocate for for uh fly fishing thank you yeah we'll do it again and we'll talk more fishing actually it just kind of hit me in the face i realized oh my gosh this is a compilation and so you're gonna have probably jim shockey talking about you know, which bullet to choose. And then you've got me talking about this. So I'm sorry, I promise if you have any questions about fishing or techniques or gear, I'm all here. I'm here to talk about it. You know what, it's all rel relevant. I think it's all part of the industry. And, I, and you know what, if, if it's something people don't want to talk about, I think it should be talked about anyway. So Touché. there it is. Thanks, April. Thank you. Well, then episode 100 here, we've got somebody you might have seen on a couple TV shows, maybe a few podcasts. He's kind of a living legend in uh, the hunting world, especially in Canada. Welcome to the show, Jim Shockey. Well, thank you very much for having me, guys. And it looks like you're uh, walking around in a museum, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's, uh, it's my happy place. It's, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, so it's taken a lifetime to put it together, so I, I enjoy spending time here. That's awesome. Uh, how are we going to start out? We're going to do the five burning questions. Uh, we do this with every guest. Just try to open up the podcast with a, with some uh, fun questions. But I'll start it off with: If you had one last meal with a drink, what would you uh, what would you eat? what would you drink? <laughs> uh, well, probably beer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, a hazy, hazy IPA, I would say. Nice. Is that going to be for the uh, for the meal and uh, and the uh, and the drink, or what would you have on yeah, your plate I, I, for that one? If, yeah, if, it, if it's the very last one, I'd probably uh, trade the meal off for for more beers, extra beers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right on. I like that answer. Next question is: uh, If you had a concert, you can go to one. Let's say your last concert, alive or dead, who would you go and watch? Well, I'd, I'd like to be on the stage performing myself. So, so <laughs> if, it, if the world's ending and that, that's, uh, this is the last shot at it, then I, I want to be on the stage and uh, be a rock and roll star for, for that last concert. <laughs> awesome. Um, so you have, uh, excuse me, muzzleloaders. You seem to hunt with them quite a bit. What's, what's the deal with them? What, what, why are they your favorite and which one do you like to shoot uh you know i i learned a long time ago that uh when i got into the hunting world i i wasn't good enough to be a, a an archer i tried i started with rifle switched to uh archery way back in the 70s and uh and i didn't have enough patience uh, you know so i wasn't a good enough hunter so i switched to muzzleloader because that was the best combination of of archery and, and rifle hunting. So if I did spend all day to sneak within 40 yards, I, I could still take a shot with a muzzleloader where with a bow and arrow, I probably would have tried the shot and I shouldn't have. So, so I wasn't disciplined back in the day to, uh, to be a good archer. N nowadays, it's a little different. I do a lot more archery than I used to um, for the last 25 years. I, 
you know, I picked the bow up again and been hunting a lot with it. But, you know, older, wiser, more disciplined. But uh, I still love muzzleloading. That, that's, that's I, I, you know, any of the North American big game, I, I hardly have taken any with a rifle. So I, I like muzzleloader. And, and any, I mean, I used Knight back in the day. Tony Knight was a dear friend of mine when he, he came up with the inline Knight muzzleloader, MK85. And uh, then I've used the Thompson Center Pro Hunters, great guns. Right. Awesome. Question number four. Um, you have a, you're going on a hunting trip and you can take one partner with you. Who are you going to take? Oh boy. You know, it would, it would be a family member, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be put in that, in that position. Right. <laughs> I just, I would probably, I can't take family. I mean, I'd love to go with my dad, my father-in-law, Louise, I'd love to have her along, even though she's not a hunter. Eva, our son, Bramlin, you know, family. Uh, I, yeah, I'd, yeah. Yeah, I'd probably turn down the opportunity if it was one last hunt. I couldn't take my entire family. That's a great answer. And then our, my last question for the day is, um, you know, we're going to kind of talk about the media and how you got started, where you are now, etc. So my last question for the five burning would be, when you first started getting into it, who did you kind of idolize? Was there somebody in the media world when it came to hunting that you kind of looked at and was like, yeah, I want to be kind of like him or her or whoever. I I wouldn't say that I ever wanted to be like anybody else. I, I kind of was stuck with who I am. So I, I but I, I certainly had a lot of respect for some of the people in the industry. Uh, Judd Cooney was was a big, you know, star back in the day when I first got into it. Uh, I can remember going to the conventions and everybody would be thronging around Judd Cooney and, and I would with Louise, my wife, and say, yeah, that would be so cool, you know, if I ever get to that position. Uh, Jim Zumbo, he's a great guy. Larry Wyshoon. You know, the guys before that, Jack O'Connor, Elmer Keith, I, I never got a chance to meet those guys. Um, so, you know, the media at the time was, when I got into the industry, was only magazine. There was no television. So the guys that were, and the, and the ladies that were the top of the game, they were the writers of the of the outdoor world. So they wrote for Outdoor Life and Sports Appeal, uh, American Hunter, North American Hunter, um, Field and Stream. Did I say that one? Uh, so they they you know that that's who were the um, and Peterson's Hunting. Th those were the guys that that when I got into the industry, they were the the big stars. Um, but I didn't want to be like any of them. I, I did, however, um, respect them. You know, had great respect for for most of them. Mm -hmm. right on that's our five burning question little segment and now we'll get into the meat and potatoes i think chase is gonna take this one over yeah man jim it, it's uh it's amazing just watching you walk around uh your uh your museum there and it's it it certainly paints a bit of a picture for us and uh about just your who you are and just the the lifetime that you've had immersed in this industry and and just immersed in in uh the natural world pretty much um it, it's just amazing to see there um when you look back on your career in the outdoor media world um did you envision your journey being what it was or how did you um kind of map stuff out, out when you were when you're traveling through there I, yeah I, I had a pretty clear a pretty clear goal and a, and a pretty clear vision of where I wanted to go. I mean, even this museum, and by the way, the, the name of the museum is the Hand of Man Museum of Natural History, Cultural Arts and Conservation. 
and and I actually started collecting uh, natural history objects, you know, seashells and and you know more cultural objects that had to do with hunting, gathering, so fish hooks when I was ten years old. So so at ten years of age, I, I literally could have told you what would be in my museum someday. Uh, I had no idea how I was going to pay for it. We you know I grew up in a trailer park. So, so we had no money and I certainly didn't have any money, but uh, I could have told you what was in it. I couldn't tell you where it would be. Um, and, and so it, it's been, you know, I'm 63 now. So it's been more than half a century of, of focus on a goal and, and the hunting, you know, I love, love the hunting, obviously. Uh, I've been able, very blessed to be able to hunt around the world, but, but the focus for me has always been to provide for the museum. Um, and, and of course, eat and live the, the field to table lifestyle. Um, so, so yeah, I, I had a pretty, pretty good idea of what I, what I intended to do in the industry. Now, you know, that man plans and God laughs. So, so I, I was fortunate. The timing was right. I, I was a writer that, you know, when I got, like I said, when I got into the industry magazines, that was all there was, there was no television. I mean, back in the early sixties, up till about 62, there was Kurt Gowdy's, American sportsman, but we didn't get that in Canada. Um, not that, not that show. So, so there was no television. There was no video. It was magazines. And, and I just happened to, you know, break into this, this industry when, when, uh, the, the media or medium changed, you know, from magazine to, uh, visuals. And, and, you know, I embraced that early on because, Writing's hard work. I mean, you write all day, and, and uh, if you're lucky, you know, in those days, you, you know, my first articles, I was getting forty-two dollars. Uh, you know, it's a lot of work for forty-two dollars. Whereas I can have a video camera, which didn't exist when I started, but as soon as they did exist, I'd carry that around, and uh, I was able to tell the story of, of the hunt, the narrative, a lot easier with a video camera than than sitting there writing. So, you know, it it was right time right place i can say that that uh you know i i knew where i was headed and what i wanted to do and my goals were exactly what i've accomplished you know but but really without without video coming on stream i i don't know if i could have accomplished it and i i'd like to think i could have uh, other people before me did so i don't know why i wouldn't have been able to but uh, mm-hmm. but yeah i had a pretty clear vision of where i wanted to go in this industry Amazing. You, you've certainly been a leader in uh, the outdoor media industry, uh, not only with like just the kind of content that you put out, but the the uh, the quality of of your shows and um, and stuff like that is is just above and beyond what most other people are are producing. Um, what what kind of hurdles did you have and did you have to over- overcome? If you look back and and uh, you know, I'm sure you laugh about lots of the, lots of the stuff that you maybe went through or endured back then. But uh, is there any 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 uh, hurdles that that you think about, or any milestones that that when you look back you just kind of laugh about? I, uh, you know, there, you know, hurdles. Anytime you you set a goal for yourself, it's going to involve challenges you know hurdles is another word for it um so i mean i, I let's face it i was a, a an unknown 
one entity, a hunter from up in Canada, and, and I was trying to, you know, break into the, the bigger market, which is mostly American. I mean, you know, we're, they're 10 times larger than our population. So, so you know, there, there's, a, there's a challenge. How, how do you get noticed in a, in a crowd that includes, as I said earlier, in those days, Judd Cooney and uh, Jim Zumbo. Th these guys were legends in those days. You know, Jim Zumbo was the hunting editor of Outdoor Life magazine, the biggest, you know, magazine at the time. Uh, so, so, you know, coming from Saskatchewan, Canada, you know, Saskatoon, uh, you know, walking into whatever, Las Vegas at the SHOT Show, uh, shooting, hunting, and outdoor trade show, the biggest one in, in, in the world. You know, how, how do you get an editor to even read any of your work? You know, how do you get noticed? How do, how, you know, how do you even get a, a meeting with them to say hello? Uh, so so those, were, those were challenges. I mean, I, I didn't, uh, you know, I, I, it, you know, it's a challenge. But what I did was, was very simple. I, I just was me, you know, and, and I'm not, you know, you know, there's a certain look that, yeah, I mean, I had, and and that stood out, I guess, a little bit. Uh, the cowboy hat, you know, that that stood out because most of these guys were fairly corporate, believe it or not. Not Zumbo and and uh, Judd Cooney, but a lot of the other big time writers of the day, you know, suits and ties kind of guys. Uh, and and you know, when when Tony Knight first gave me an opportunity to come on a hunt with these guys, he, you know, I sent him a picture of a deer I got with one of his guns. And uh, he invited me down to this fancy hunt. I uh, was it in uh, in uh, Missouri at the time, and uh, you know there, there's all these superstars in the industry at this hunt. Uh, what they call it, an industry hunt for deer. And I, I came in dressed like uh, they called me a bag lady, you know, because I, I you know I didn't have the fancy camo. Bill Jordan was there actually at that hunt, and uh, you know I came in with my socks on my my arms to keep my wrists warm and my little Indian moccasin rubbers that I hunted in all the time and big fuzzy socks. And I mean, they, you know, you know they, they, uh, they could not at least notice me and, and, you know, and that's fine. You call me a bag lady all you want. Let's, let's see who gets, uh, who gets a deer here, who can hunt harder, longer. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, you know, I just let my actions speak for themselves. And, I, and I'm not, you know, I know who I am and I'm not, you know, I don't lack in confidence. So you, you, you want to come at me and, and uh, you know, make fun. And they did it, you know, very respectfully. I mean, that's what we do at hunting camp, right? You're, you, you want to be one of the guys. You got to be able to take it and dish it out. And, and I have no problem uh, coming back at them with, uh, you know, with humor and, 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 and really, I, I you know, I got along with them pretty good. So, so it was that, that break, Tony Knight helped out a lot. You know, I was already writing up in Canada for big buck magazine and Western sportsman magazines like that. So I had the writing skill down and then it was, you know, like I say, that, that was probably the biggest challenge though was, was getting anybody down south to notice this, you know, unknown hunter from up in uh, Saskatchewan, Canada. Yeah, it's, it's super interesting because um, it, it almost sounds like you didn't really want to uh, join, like let's say, like the boys club. You wanted to be yourself. You stuck to your guns. And that, that was one thing that we've got a lot of advice through uh, through our program with the podcast. And, you know, one of the things that always sticks in my mind is like, it doesn't matter if there's going to be one person that listens or a million people that listens, 
as long as you have a goal and you and you keep driving that goal and try to do it you know someday it'll work out or you know maybe you'll get more than one one person listening so that kind of leads me to the question of like what is that driving force for you kind of touched on a little bit but being yourself obviously is one but what's that other thing that just keeps you going keeps you getting up in the, every day and to, to creating content and, and showing what you love of, of the outdoors i i, I mean th- we get one life every one of us gets one life to live so you know why not do what you love doing it's your life don't let anybody ever take it from you and I, i'm talking metaphorically or figuratively you, you know it's your life so so i love hunting I, I, that's what i love doing so why wouldn't i just do that and 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 like i say keep keep working towards towards that that goal and and you know for me part of my goal i love telling stories and and i love representing an ideal of what I think hunting is about and, and, you know, the spirituality, the getting in touch with our ancestral soul, the fact that, you know, this museum is, is culture and conservation just as much as natural history, you know, and, and they're not, you know, I mean, you know, you're looking at a, a cave bear skeleton behind and a, a mammoth, woolly mammoth tusk, uh, you know, there's a woolly mammoth skeleton here, a Tyrannosaurus, a woolly rhino skeleton. That, that's not animals I hunted, obviously. Um, so, so it's, you know, it was important to me to be able to tell the story of what hunting is and, and should be, because we all didn't know it and don't know it. I mean, depending on where you come from, my dad, it was about killing a deer for meat. So to him, a deer was simply a hamburger running across the field. And, and, you know, that's not, that's not sustainable going into the future of our, you know, this new world we live in. It's got to be more than just about meat. There, there literally has to be a, a spiritual component to hunting. And, and uh, I, I love, I love hunting. I love hunters. Love everything about it. But I think it's important that um, you know we're, we tell us a, a tale, a story um, to that eighty percent out there that don't hunt. You know, there's ten percent hate us, and we'll never, you know, they'll never ever embrace hunting. They're against it for you know, uh, animal rights ideologies, anti-hunting, anti-ideologies. But there's 80%, 10% of us are hunters, and 80%, are, they'll go with this way or that way. So, you know, what, what motivates me is to make a difference in the public's, you know, that 80%'s perception of what hunting and hunters are all about. And, and when I die, if my epitaph says he made a positive difference on the perception of what hunting and hunters are all about, I will, I'll be happy. I'll, I'll spend eternity knowing, okay, you know, I use this life in a good way, this one life that we all get to live. So, you know, that, that's what motivates me is, is to keep telling this, this story. You, you, you just have to keep, keep the messaging out there. And, and, you know, as hunters and we're, we're not always the best at doing that. So, so I'm, you know, if I have a voice, I'm going to use it for that purpose. And every day I get up, you know, that's why I'm talking to you. It's, it's, uh, it's important. If we reach, you said it, one person, one person, that's good enough. I mean, that's great. And if we reach more, that's even better. But we have to all keep telling this story about what we really are. Otherwise, you know, the, the other side, our end will continually vilify and marginalize us. Um, and and we, we just have to take the high road and, and keep saying, no, no, this is what we are. 
this is who we are. This is what we do. This is why we do it. And here's the benefits. So, so that's what motivates me is to get up every day and be able to tell that, that story. That's me there. Yeah, that sound, that's awesome. Yeah, that's exactly, exactly what we all need to do is kind of band together. And that's, like I said, that's why we're, we got into the podcasting world and um, it's just to tell a story and a lot of people like yourself and, and other people in the industry is um, kind of driven us to where we're at now and, and telling that story. But um, the other thing I was going to ask you too quickly while we're kind of on that topic is, and you kind of, you get kind of talked about it there at the end too, but so is that kind of like the future and that's kind of what you're looking at the, the future of hunting, let's say, or the outdoors world is just keep driving that story, keep talking about things. Um, you know, what's, uh, where, where is the future when it comes to hunting in the media? Well, I mean, you know, if mainstream media had their way, we, we would be gone, you know, on the other hand, they kind of need us because they, they need somebody, to, you know, a, a whipping boy, a terrible phrase, but, but, you know, bad news sells for $2, good news sells for $1. So, so they need to have, you know, villains and paint us as, as, um, you know, Neanderthals that are throwbacks to a, a time that's passed. Uh, but I, I, you know, it's not the truth. It's not the truth. And, and ultimately I'm a firm believer that the, the truth prevails because you, you know, you can, you can stand in the Coliseum and, and they release the lions, but if you have faith, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You can you can call me names. I don't care. You you, you can call me out on social media. You, you, you know it's you can try and public shame me, but I'm not ashamed. I'm proud of who I am. I know what hunters and hunting is all about, and and I have nothing to apologize for. So so you know that's a truth. That's faith in in who we are and and what we stand for what we believe in and faith that this is a great way to live a life field to table living it's healthy you know it's green we were the first green advocates you know that's hunters i mean you know we we live as purely as you possibly can and and so you know i believe the truth will will prevail and and in the end the um, you'll you'll see people want truth. The, you know they they'll buy into fallacy and fiction. Um, as I said, it sells for two dollars, and everybody wants to know. You know, is the world really ending? But they they really truly want the truth, and and I I think that you you'll see an acceptance of hunting in the future. The the more we can message, the more we can get the message out there about what we're what we do and why, then, you know, the, the, the vast majority of the public, they get it. I mean, they get it. Once you explain it to them, it's just nobody ever explains it to them except mm-hmm. the popular media and the popular press. And, and, you know, <laughs> we certainly don't control that, that messaging on the, on the mainstream media. So, so they, like I say, vilify and marginalize us. Uh, but eventually the, the truth prevails and, and, uh, and, you know, we are, we are right. We're right. And, and we're not ashamed of it. And, and they can attack us all they want. They can feed us to the lions, but we still will stand proudly and, and, uh, and unashamedly, you know, state we, we are hunters regardless of 
what you want to do to us. So, so I, I have faith that the future, I'm, I'm bullish on the future for, for hunting and hunters. That's amazing. Uh, it's, it's, we've, we've had conversations like this before on the podcast and it, 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 it just, it's amazing how we find it's almost the same thing. And, and you sit down and if you can sit down and have a conversation with some of these people, it goes way longer than, than, or way further than, than, uh, just having an argument on the internet or having them read something that that sways them a certain way. And, uh, like you said, we get vilified, uh, way too often by that fact. Um, we, uh, we don't have you for much longer here, Jim. So I'm, I got a couple more questions teed up for you, but, um, you know, you, you've, you've had a major influence on, uh, the hunting industry as a whole throughout your lifetime here. Um, you have a, you know, you brought up your family through, uh, the outdoors, living them, or raising them in the outdoors, living your lifestyle, how you wanted to live. You have this amazing museum where you're telling stories, uh, about, uh, the natural world and life there. What, uh, what's, I guess, when you look back, what, what's one of your, your favorite part of your legacy that, that, uh you've gone through hmm. uh, you know i i think um the fact that i've been able to give back as much as i've been able to give back that that i mean let's face it you're you're on this world for how many years you know god willing and and uh you know you can do what you want with that life you're given on this world and i I, I've been fortunate enough to be able to live the life that I, that I always wanted to live, to be able to put this museum together for, for you know, th- this community uh, and the larger, you know, hunting community. Um, so, so the, you know, but, but I, I, I honestly don't think, like, I, I just don't think about myself and all this. I, I really don't. I, you know, I, these things you're seeing in the background in this museum, and anybody can Google you know, hand of man museum and they, they can watch a two minute video on, on what the museum's all about. But, you know, I don't own any of these things. I, I paid for them. Yes. And I put this together and put every single piece in place here. I found it located, had the joy of the experience of doing that, but you, you don't own this. You, you don't, nobody owns anything. You're just a steward of, of these things while you're alive. And, and, you know, I, I I've been, so fortunate to be able to just give it to the community and say here it's open donation only you know we own the building own the land own the contents but you really don't all all we've done is said here it's for the it's for the the uh, community now and and we'll set up an endowment so that this museum will go on for hopefully generations after we're gone and a board of directors hopefully won't screw it up um, <laughs> but but i don't look at it as my legacy it was or, or it's not about me. I'm in the museum. It's not the Jim Shockey's museum. Hand of, it's not. Mm-hmm. It's the Hand of Man Museum. And, and uh, you know, there sh- certainly part of the narrative in here is that it was collected by one person, not, you know, a bunch of unknown erudite ivory tower academics. Um, but, and, and you know, but, but I, I don't think about, honestly, my own legacy. I'm just, I was lucky, I'm fortunate. I've got my memories, uh, you know, I've got the experiences. Nobody can ever take that away from you. Yeah. Though, 
Well, they, they can take your money away, but they can never take your your experiences away. Those those are yours. And whether it's educational experiences or travel, whatever, they're all tied together. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't, I mean, I, I, I just was fortunate to be able to do this. I feel blessed that I could, I can give back like I've been able to give back. And, and I don't look at it as, you know, anything special. It's just was my calling. It was my goal. And, and I did it. And, and then I'll bow out gracefully and, <laughs> and let young guys uh, take it from there. You know, hopefully when you're my age, you'll, you'll uh, have some younger guys giving you a call on their podcast or whatever they're going to call it. Mm-hmm. You know, space, whatever they call it in those days. And, uh, and you'll be able to, uh, to say the same thing. What a, what a blessed life we've been able to live as hunters uh, and, and gatherers and in this world and what a wonderful world it is. Mm-hmm. You know, you just do and not, like I said, I don't. I don't think about myself in any of that. It's not. It's not about me. Yeah. Well, I, I I was trying to frame up a question to ask you. You know, what uh, what your how would you bow out? But I think it's pretty evident that you do a fantastic job storytelling. You enjoy storytelling, and uh, you know you are living the life that you want to live, and you enjoy doing it because that's how you curated your life. So. I don't imagine uh, we'll be seeing the last of you for uh, anytime soon, which is good because uh, we need many folks like you around telling those stories and and uh, telling the truth. Um, I guess my last question right now is: uh, Do you have a favorite item in your museum? It's 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 phenomenal because I'm looking. There's dinosaurs in there. There's all kinds of stuff I, I don't even recognize. But uh, I'm curious to what your favorite item might be. Uh there, you know, that's it's just, there's a memory with each one of these. You know, like you can't maybe see it real well, but up in the top there, there's a uh, that moose in the very top center. That was my dad's last moose. You know, I, I guided him up in the Yukon or Rogue River opening territory, and there's if you're here, you can actually see where his first shot hit the the moose in in the antler. You know, there's a bullet hole in it, and and uh, you know that that's one moose. But you know, right, I'm looking down here at, at Eva's very first moose uh, mm-hmm. from Newfoundland, our daughter Eva's. You know, there's our there's art in here that that each one of these pieces is probably the only thing left from that person in this world. You know, they're they're gone, and this this single piece of art that they made still exists. And whether it's tribal art or there's mid-century modern paintings in here, there's handmade guitars, baskets from all over the world, masks and, and uh, costumes, you know, tribal costumes, textiles, you know, there's Dukabor, you're seeing Dukabor rugs on the, on the wall behind me and, and fishing flags from Ghana that, that somebody made. I mean, those, those symbols on that fishing flag that was on their, on their fishing boat, that represented who they were and what they believed in. So, you know, to, to try and pick one thing in here and, and say that uh, that's my favorite. I mean, every, every one of these pieces in here was handmade or mm-hmm. touched by man, or, you know, humans. Um, so, so there's no way to, to put elevate one above the others. Yeah. It, they're all important. And, you know, some have personal memories Certainly, like I say, my dad's moose, he was moose, our son's, you know, first uh, white-tailed deer. They're, they're all here. And, and uh, then there's the photographs that, 
that mean so much. You know, my wife, Nana Weezy, traveling with me to Ethiopia, those, you know, those are all important. So, so I, they're all, you know, every single, like I say, every single piece in here I've touched, I've found, located, collected, brought it back here and put in place. And, and that's right down to the tiniest seashell, like I say, that I started collecting when I was 10 years old. Um, to the latest, greatest piece that we have in here. And, you know, this this Gigantosaurus skeleton behind me, you know, it's 47 feet long. And, and that, uh, you know, every one of these pieces is 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 important to me in the museum. Yeah. And, and they, because they represent somebody's life and possibly the only thing left from that person's life. So, yeah, they're, 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 they're all, they're all very dear to me. Every single thing in here. Amazing. Sheldon, do you have any final things for Jim? Yeah, I just uh, kind of had some little final thoughts, I guess I could call them. But uh, the one thing that stuck out in my mind today, Jim, talking with you for uh, this period is we had a guest called Doug Dern. And one thing he always said to us was, or his kind of tagline is, it's not ours, it's just our turn. And I just think there's so many people in the outdoor industry that kind of um, have that same idea and the same um, kind of like philosophy of going through life. And I know as a fact, like watching uh, a lot of videos when I was younger, uh, even today watching you on TV, I know there's a lot of, you know, kids. I may or may not have been one of them that dressed up as you for Halloween, you know, maybe the odd, uh, the odd houseboy tuning into the, to the husband's show when you come on with your cowboy hat and stuff. But just to kind of wrap it all up, just thank you for being you. You've been a, a great influence to a lot of people and, and to get you on our show for this episode has been a, a total pleasure. So thanks a lot, Jim. Oh, it's, it's my honor to be on your 100th episode. That's, uh, like I say, that, that's a, a big honor and, and I really appreciate you having me on. Well, right on, Jim. Thanks again. And uh, yeah, keep on, uh, keep on doing what you're doing, man. I'll do my best, I promise. Well, that is it. That's a hundred. Uh, we did it. You did it. Uh, thanks so much for the guests, uh, Jim, Cody, April for coming on and contributing to the show, being a part of this, like for us, it's a monumental moment. Um, huge thank out. Thank you to the listeners. Um, and everyone who supported us along the way, honestly, it, it can't be done. We, we, we wouldn't be here without you. Yeah. Literally. So no doubt at all, man. Thank yeah. I, I'm gonna mirror everything you just said there, and it, it's huge. I think the, the biggest part is like all the support that comes down the pipe here through our community that we have around us here, and everyone who either you know just sends us a message on Instagram, leaves us a, a message or a, a like comment on on our, uh, our podcast, or anybody that's buying clothing off of us you know goes a hell of a long way goes a hell of a long way and um i hope we're bringing something useful to your lives and i hope we're here in another three years to to bring something else for you yeah totally to keep the content rolling um also like huge shout out to chase and sheldon here too um and uh, you know sheldon not being able to be you know, fully part of this, like Sheldon does so much work for the company. Um, I, I miss not having them, you know, on the reg 
with the with the podcast here, but uh, I'm glad he was able to contribute uh, through the interviews. And it, uh, I think back like we when we first started, we just had so many ideas on the go, and it was like kind of finding a, a model that worked and uh, made sense. And uh, it's it's just it's been a fun journey. I know we've kind of had different ideas at times. We've had, uh, you know, some long nights discussing what the next step is, but it's just been so cool to, to be able to add to the conversation of conservation, outdoor enthusiasm, um, all across Canada and Mm -hmm. North America in some ways. Right. Yeah. 100% man. Yeah. And again, that all comes down to, to listeners and people who, you know, everyone from family to, to folks who shoot us random messages like chase was saying um online i just love to hear it and uh just love to know that we're connecting with folks yeah big time but before we leave you too one more shout out for the store we just got in some blaze orange hoodies so i know gun season's starting up i think today opened up the the muzzleloader season so um for whitetail deer so if you're looking for something for the woods to be seen got you covered yeah any final thoughts before we depart here buddy well i just wanted to say if we don't see you in the woods make sure you uh keep an edge on that blade keep that powder dry and uh keep your orange on there you go thanks for listening folks